That's great. So that is how my friend tricked me into getting slapped by a Catholic priest. That is that is so fantastic. That's yeah, I, I love that story. Yeah. So I. This is bullshit. America's leading industry is still the manufacture, distribution, packaging, and marketing of bullshit. We're back. Hello, everyone. At least I am. Yeah, at least I am. <laughs> I had to adjust my mic. I realized it was a bit too high. That, that's okay. I, at you least know what? I wasn't worried about it. Yeah, at least we're both live. That's <laughs> right at the start. Yeah, of this unlike time. last time. Yeah. Thanks, well, Josh. Yeah. Well, guys, welcome to, to the, the Necessary, Necessary Bullshit, Bullshit Podcast. Podcast. We're an ongoing experimental conversation podcast, and we like to reflect on what? Uh, intellectual skepticism. Hell yeah. Self-education. Boom. And deep conversations. Very, very deep. Again, I'm, t- I'm telling you, we need to get a soundboard because I can't keep doing that. I guess that's fine. I yeah. guess that's fine. We'll start to maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get creative and, and as we grow this podcast, I'll start adding like cool sound effects and it's just going to be like a radio show where I'm like, hey, Josh and Ian, you know, where they yeah. do all the. But well, but then yeah. we we need a third person to just like laugh at our jokes every time oh, you know who's just like insane they're not mic'd you know they're just like in the background like oh, I can't believe oh, what a great guy yeah kind of like you were for the first uh, thirty minutes of last episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly but all right well as much as we like to do this let we I sh- we should probably get into the content of this episode because we yeah. have quite a bit to cover yeah Josh why don't you t- uh, introduce us to what we're talking about today? yeah sure so um, as we said before this is kind of a if a, if a of a pseudo Western religion series slash global religion series while talking about the three main religions. Um, Ian and I were, Ian had the idea and we were really kind of excited just to kind of learn because, you know, all these religions are very prominent in in a lot of cultures and and a lot of people believe and follow these different doctrines. And so we kind of wanted to get a brief understanding. So we started with, with Judaism, we moved into Islam and now we're in Christianity. And the reason why we decided to do Christianity last is because not only is it's probably in in the Western context, the most well-known, especially Especially to Ian and, and myself, um, but it also kind of has, I would say, you know, the most amount, the the, the I guess the most to it in the concept of of, of spirituality and mythology, and and sure. not saying that Islam and Judaism doesn't compare to that. However, it's just more of I think for us because we more of kind of understand the navigation of this religion probably a little bit better. It might be easier for Ian and I to kind of move down this track. So right. how we're going to kind of start this is Ian's going to kind of uh, kick us off with with more of the history and the background of how Christians came to be, and then I'm going to going to cover kind of the mythology the theological side of it in a sense and then we're just going to kind of wrap it up like we've done with a brief uh, discussion overall so yeah. i guess from then i'm just going to pass it to ian all right so uh christianity as we uh, all know is an abrahamic monotheistic religion based on the life and teachings of jesus of nazareth his adherents known as christians believe that jesus is the christ Who's coming as the Messiah was prophesied in the Hebrew Bible called the Old Testament and Christianity, as we know, and chronicled in the New, in the New Testament. It is the world's largest with re- largest religion with about uh, 2.4 billion followers. So yeah, that's 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 a, that's a fuckload. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Jesus of Nazareth, um, Nazareth again, <laughs> Nazareth, um, Jesus of Nazareth which is, is the his... central figure of Christianity, uh, again, as we all know. So Jesus was uh, born around four bc or bce if you prefer and died around uh 30 AD or around 33 so 
Uh, he was also he's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth of Nazareth. Jeez, why am I butchering? That and it's name? also important to point <clears throat> out that BC does stand for before Christ, right? That, yeah, but that's, like, that's not the real. But that's like the. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like some refer to it as that. Like not that BC actually means before Christ, but a lot of people interpret it that way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, most commonly in in the scientific realm and in the, in the other historical thing, we use BCE and CE, excuse me, which is uh, before the common era and then the common era. So um, again, so he's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth of Nazareth. Well, I'm going to just butcher that name. (laughs) Nazareth. Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Josh. Uh, but mainly Jesus Christ uh, is as he's known as, and he was the first. Uh, he's a first century Jew- Jewish preacher and religious leader, and he's the central figure. So mis- most Christians believe he is the incarnation of God the Son and the awaited Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. So I want to get down for a second on the meaning of Christ. And so it's a concept in Christianity originating from the concept of the Messiah in Judaism. Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah foretold in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. Although the conceptions of the Messiah in each religion are similar, for the most part, they are distinct from another due to the split in early Christianity and Judaism in the first century. So the Messiah in Judaism is a savior and liberator figure in Jewish eschatology who is believed to be the future redeemer of the Jewish people. The concept of Messianism originated in Judaism and in the Hebrew Bible, a Messiah king uh, or the Messiah is a king or a high priest traditionally anointed with holy, with holy anointing oil. However, Messiahs are not exclusively Jewish, as the Hebrew Bible refers to Cyrus the, uh, the Great, who is a king of Persia. And as a uh, Messiah, for, uh, so he was known as Messiah for his decree to rebuild the Jerusalem temple in, the, in Jewish eschatology. So the Messiah is a future Jewish king from the uh, Davidic line who is expected to be anointed with holy oil and rule the Jewish people during the Messianic age and the world to come. The Messiah is often referred to as King Messiah or Malka Mashiha in Aramaic. And Jewish Messianism gave birth to Christianity, again, which started as the uh, Second Temple period Messianic Jewish sect. Excuse me. So Christ, uh, which is used by Christians as both a name and a title, is synonymous with Jesus. It is also used as a title in the in the reciprocal use Christ Jesus, meaning the Messiah Jesus, and independently as the Christ. The Pauline epistles, the early texts of the New Testament, often refer to Jesus as Christ Jesus or Christ, although the original followers of Jesus believed um, him to be the Jewish Messiah. Uh, for example, confession, the confession of Peter, Jesus was usually referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, uh, wow. Nazareth. I'm, I'm really butchering yeah, that Yeah, just that one yeah. word. Yeah. Um, or Jesus, son of Joseph. Uh, he came to be called Jesus Christ, meaning uh, Jesus the Christos, uh, uh, Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed uh, by later Christians who believed that his crucifixion and resurrection fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. So are you saying here we'll that... We'll later. Are you saying here that, that initially... Uh, he wasn't referred to as Christ. Like it was just Jesus of Nazareth or, you know, son of, son of John. Yeah. Yeah. Son of Joseph. Yeah. Joseph. It was was sort of like after the fact, it was like after the fact because he was the Messiah and Messiah is, is basically, and Christos is the root word of of Messiah. So Christ or Jesus is Christ. So Jesus, the Messiah. So it's not like Christ is his last name. No, no. (laughs) Christ is not his last name. So he can't be like Christ, Jesus Christ. Like if he was doing a bond thing, it's more of like that. That's interesting. That's, I did not, you know, I'm going to be honest with listeners here. Like I I did not know that. Yeah. Christ is, is a title. Is a title. Like as him just noting that he's the Messiah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, virtually all modern scholars, uh, scholars of antiquity agree that Jesus existed historically, 
uh, which is a point of controversy. Although the quest for the historical Jesus has produced little agreement on the historical reliability of the Gospels and on how closely the Jesus portrayed in the Bible reflects the historical Jesus. Jesus is a Galilean Jew who was baptized by John the Baptist and began uh, his own ministry. He preached orally and was often referred to as a rabbi. Jesus debated with fellow Jews on how to best follow God, engaged in healings, taught in parables, and gathered followers. He was, a, he was arrested and tried by Jewish authorities, turned over to the Roman, Roman government, and crucified on the order of Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect. After his death, his followers believed that he rose from the dead, and the community they formed eventually became the early church. So <clears throat> I want to look into the genealogy of Jesus for a moment. Sure. And it's a bit convoluted, so bear with me here. Uh, like everything else. Right. So uh, Matthew and Luke each describe Jesus's birth, especially that uh, Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy. Luke's account emphasizes events before the birth of Jesus and centers on Mary, while Matthew's mostly covers those after the birth and centers on Joseph. Both accounts state that Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary, his betrothed in, in Bethlehem, and both support the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus, according to which Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb when she was still a virgin. At the same time, there is evidence, at least in the Luke and Acts of the Apostles, that Jesus was thought to have had, like many figures in antiquity, in antiquity excuse me, a dual paternity, since there it is uh, stated he descended from the seed or loins of David. By taking him on uh, as his own, Joseph will give him the, uh, the necessary Davidic descent. In Matthew, Joseph is troubled because Mary, his betrothed, uh, his betrothed is pregnant. But in the first part of uh, Joseph's three dreams, uh, an angel assures him not to be afraid to, to take Mary as his wife because her child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew Book 2, chapters 1 through 12, wise men or magi from the east bring gifts to the young Jesus as the king of the Jews. They find Jesus in a house in Bethlehem and not a barn, and Jesus is now a child and not an infant. Matthew focuses on an event after the Luke nativity where Jesus was an infant. In Matthew, Herod the Great hears of Jesus' birth and, wanting him killed, orders the, murder, uh, orders the murders of male infants in Bethlehem under the age of two. It's pretty extreme. Uh, but an angel warns Joseph in his second dream, and the family flees to Egypt, later to return and settle to Nazareth. So, Jesus' early life, uh, he, his childhood home identified in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew as the town of Nazareth in Galilee, where he lived with his family. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Gospel of Mark reports that Jesus comes into conflict with his neighbors and family. Jesus' mother and brothers come to get him because people are saying that he is crazy. And uh, Jesus responds to his followers uh, that uh, his followers are his true family. So in John, Mary follows Jesus to his crucifixion, and he expressed concern over her well-being. And Jesus is called a tecton. Uh, in Mark uh, Book 6, Chapter 3, uh, traditionally understood as a carpenter, uh, at least Jesus is, but could cover makers of objects and various materials, uh, including builders. The Gospels indicate that Jesus could read, paraphrase, and debate scripture, but this does not necessarily mean that he received formal scribal training. When Jesus is presented as a baby in the temple per Jewish law, a man named Simeon said to Mary that, and Joseph that Jesus shall stand as a sign of contradiction, while a sword will pierce your own soul. Then the secret thoughts of many will come to light. So a few years later, when Jesus goes missing on a visit to, to Jerusalem, his parents find him in the temple, uh, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions, and the people are amazed at his understanding and answers. But Mary scolds him for going missing, to which Jesus replies that he must be in his father's house. 
So another uh, important uh, event here in his life are his baptism and temptation. So the synoptic accounts of Jesus's baptism are all preceded by information about John the Baptist. They show John preaching penance and repentance for the remission of sins and encouraging the giving of alms to the poor as he baptizes people in the area of the Jordan River around Perea and foretells the arrival of someone more powerful than he. In Mark, John baptizes Jesus and he comes out of the water. He sees the Holy Spirit descending to him like a dove and he hears a voice from heaven declaring him to be sons of God. So that would be pretty intense. Uh, sons, yeah. sons God? God? God's son, I'm sorry. He's going to be sons He's God. He's going to be sons God. <laughs> this is adorable. Yeah. So uh, this is one of the two events described in the Gospels where a voice from heaven calls Jesus' son, the other being the transfiguration. The Spirit then drives him into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. Jesus then begins his ministry after John's arrest. Uh, Jesus' baptism in Matthew is similar. Here, before Jesus' baptism, John protests, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus instructs him to carry on with the baptism to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew also details the three temptations that Satan offers Jesus in the wilderness. In Luke, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove as everyone uh, after everyone has been baptized and Jesus is praying. John simply recognizes Jesus from prison after sending his followers to ask about him. And Jesus' baptism and temptation serve a, as preparation for his public ministry. Before we get to the next part, isn't sure. it kind of true that as far as uh, Jesus' accounts in the New Testament, he they talk about his birth briefly, but then by the time he's baptized, he's he's almost he's in his 30s or like yes. early, early 30s. Yeah, they sort of skip ahead. Yeah, so there's like, I think what's always been interesting to me is there's always that kind of gap between his birth and his baptism where, you know, we're not, I guess, you know, he may, obviously you can allude to, he probably picked up his carpentry skills then and also right. his ability to sort read. of building houses well know, no chairs, but reading and writing and it's just it, you know it'd be interesting there's always that that, that 30 year gap of what jesus was yeah, like doing. what was going on yeah here? when he was growing <laughs> i've always been curious about that gap yeah, as well sure. so anyway keep going so yeah moving on to his public ministry uh, as i said the synoptics de uh, depict two distinct geographical settings in jesus's ministry the first takes place in uh, the north of judea in galilee where jesus conducts conducts a successful ministry and the second shows Jesus rejected and killed when he travels to Jerusalem. So quite the uh, different environment there. Uh, he's often referred to as rabbi, as I uh, previously mentioned, and he preaches his, his messages orally. Notably, Jesus forbids those who recognize him as the Messiah to speak of it, including people who heals and demons he exercises. John depicts Jesus's ministry as largely taking place in and around Jerusalem rather than Galilee. And Jesus' uh, divine identity is openly proclaimed and immediately recognized. Scholars divi uh, divide the ministry of Jesus into several stages. The Galilean ministry begins when Jesus returns to Galilee from the Judean desert after rebuffing the temptation of Satan. Jesus preaches around Galilee, and in Matthew book 4, chapters 18 through 20, his first disciples, who will eventually form the core of the early church, encounter him and begin to travel with him. This period includes the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' major discourses, as well as the calming of the storm, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, and a number of other miracles and parables. It ends with the confession of Peter and the transfiguration. As Jesus travels towards Jerusalem in the Perean ministry, he returns to the area where he was baptized, about a third of the way down from the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan River. The final ministry in Jerusalem begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city on Palm Sunday. In the Synoptic Gospels, during the, that week, Jesus drove the money changers uh, from the Second Temple and Judas bargains to betray him. 
This period culminates in the Last Supper and the Farewell Discourse. So here we probably get into the most uh, intense week of Jesus's life, which is known as Passion Week. So the description of the last week of uh, the life of Jesus occupies about one third of the narrative in the canonical gospel, starting with Jesus's triumphal entry to Jerusalem and ending in the crucifixion. So the first thing we have is the Last Supper. It's the final meal that, uh, final meal that Jesus shares with his uh, 12 apostles in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. The Last Supper is mentioned in all four canonical Gospels. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians uh, also refers to it. During that meal, Jesus predicts that one of the apostles will betray him. Spoiler alert, it's Judas. <laughs> Despite apostles' assertion that he would not betray him, Jesus reiterates that the betrayer would be one of uh, those present. So in Matthew book 26, chapters 23 through 25, and John uh, book 13, chapters 26 through 27, uh, I specifically identified Judas as the, tra- as the traitor. And I'm going to stop right here for a second and say, so... For a long time growing up, you know, when I read the Bible or was in church or anything like that, there was no explanation into how to read biblical, uh, you know, bookmarkers and everything like that. It was, it's been the most frustrating thing to, you know, to go through in life, you know, when, in my early life, when I was a Christian, I'm like, what the fuck does this mean? I have no idea what you're talking about. So what do you mean by biblical book? Like the, like. 12.8 or the yeah, breakdown, exactly. the break. Okay. Yeah. Breakdown. So of the chapters it was and only the specific sentences in those. Yeah, in exactly. Those chapters. So it okay. was only when I started taking philosophy actually, and learning about ancient Greek and the way things were done. So when you look at a traditional book and I'm using air quotes here, those are just scrolls. One book is a scroll. Yeah. And in those scroll, there are sort of chapters within it. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in, uh, biblical texts and uh, early classical uh, philosophy like Aristotle and Plato, they compiled those books into one sort of uh, I like compilation, I guess. So Aristotle has many different, again, air quote books here. So he has like his politics or the Nicomachean ethics. And then within those group of texts, there would be a collection of books so you would see and like almost, chapters within those books, almost like the the Bible. Okay, if you phrase it this way, the Bible is is basically it's a it's a it's, so it's a collection of books that has been woven together. So it's kind of yeah. like you can you can kind of consider it like uh, the complete works, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. You'd be like you know the Bible is just necessarily the complete works of Christianity, yeah. Like and all the accounts, exactly. And so you know because I have a book that's all of Shakespeare's plays, mm-hmm. and yes, each play is individual but it's in one bound book which is his complete works yeah so you exactly. know and i think i have you know i have a digital version of nietzsche's all of his books in one book for yeah. his complete works exactly so i think it follows yeah that so it's, it's very similar so like uh for example you know like the reason why the new testament is often referred to as the gospels of jesus is because so like in this example matthew and john they are the gospels of matthew and the gospels of john so like matthew sat down wrote a bunch of scroll, you know, had a bunch of scrolls and each scroll was its own book. Mm-hmm. And, but all of those books compiled, make up the, the gospel of Matthew. Got it. Yeah. So I just wanted to linger on that for a second. Right. And I would almost super argue, confusing. Right. That is. But, <laughs> and I think it's also the terminology. Cause I think to make it a little bit easier, it's just like, even though you would say that Matthew, his gospel is a series of books within a book, within a book yeah. you can say it's that bookception like, right you, yeah it's, it's bookception you can almost really just say that like it's it's we can consider that like ch- you know the the book or the gospel of matthew is is uh, each book quote unquote is more probably like a, an elongated chapter 
Um, yeah, and yeah, then, you can you know, say that. You can, yeah. you know, just for understanding's sake, it's, and then it's all compiled. People didn't write the same way, you know, as we do Right, now, right, 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 right. right. Makes so, sense. Um, moving on. Yeah, moving on. So uh, after uh, Judas is identified as the traitor, in the synoptics, Jesus, the, again, this is about the Last Supper, Jesus takes bread, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given to for you. I'm sorry. What? I don't know why I did that accent. Why? <laughs> That's, I just, I'm sorry. That's very so, insensitive. Just, yeah. <laughs> Again, that goes in line with your, yeah. Well, so, I mean, it's just like, you know, just like, I'm just like, Oh, I need like <laughs> listeners just so you know, like Ian's, Ian's, Ian's EQ is so terribly low. And sometimes I forget about that. And then he does shit like he just did. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. He's an insane that's person. Right. So he, he has no, yeah. He then has him drink from, a... <laughs> go ahead. Call, get through uh, yeah, this. All. all from a cup. saying. <laughs> What? Will you just get it out? I'm I'm about to do the same thing. Don't do. Just read it. He then. This cup is poured out for you. Is the new covenant of my blood. Who I got through. Okay. The Christian sacrament or ordinance of the uh, Eucharist is based on these events. Although the Gospel of John does not include a description of the bread and wine ritual during the Last Supper, most scholars agree that John. Book 6, chapters 22 through 59, has a Eucharistic character and resonates with the institution narratives in the Synoptic Gospels. And in the Pauline writings on the Last Supper, in all four Gospels, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny uh, knowledge of him three times before the rooster crows the next morning. And in Luke and John, the prediction is made during uh, the Supper. In Matthew and Mark, the prediction is made after the Supper. Jesus also predicts that all his disciples will desert him. And the Gospel of John provides the only account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet after the meal. John also includes a long sermon by Jesus, preparing, uh, preparing his disciples, now without Judas, for his departure. So chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John are known as the farewell discourse and are a significant source of uh, Christological content. So, now moving into the crucifixion and entombment. Uh, his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, is described in all four canonical Gospels. After the trials, Jesus is led to uh, Calvary, carrying the, his cross. The route traditionally known, uh, thought to have been taken is known as the uh, Via Della Rosa. The three synoptic Gospels indicate that Simon of Cyrene assists him, having been compelled by the Romans to do so. In Luke book 23, chapters 27 through 28, just, uh, Jesus tells the woman in the multitude of uh, people following him not to weep for him, but for themselves and their children. At Calvary, Jesus is offered a sponge soaked in a concoction uh, usually offered as a painkiller. According to Matthew and Mark, he refuses it. Uh, and the soldiers then crucify Jesus and cast his uh, cast lots for his clothes. Above Jesus' head on the cross is Pilate's inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Soldiers and passerby uh, mock him about it, and two convicted thieves are crucified along Jesus. Uh, in Matthew and Mark, both thieves mock Jesus. Uh, in Luke, one of them rebukes Jesus while the other defends him. Jesus tells the latter, Today you will be with me in paradise. In John, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and be- the beloved disciple were at the crucifixion. Jesus tells the beloved uh, disciple to take care of his mother. The Roman soldiers break the two thieves' legs, a procedure designed to hasten death in a crucifixion, but they do not break those of Jesus as he is already dead. So in John book 19, chapter 34, one soldier uh, pierced Jesus' side with a lance and blood and water flow out. In the synoptics, when Jesus dies, a uh, the heavy curtain in the temple is torn. And in Matthew book 27, chapters 51 through 54, an earthquake breaks open the tombs. 
And in Matthew and Mark, terrified by the events, a Roman centurion states that Jesus was the Son of God. On the same day, Joseph of Arimathea, with Pilate's permission and with Nicodemus' help, removes Jesus' body from the cross, wraps him in a clean cloth, and buries him in the new uh, rock hone tomb. In Matthew book 27, chapters 26 through uh, 22 through 26, on the following day, the chief Jewish priests uh, asked Pilate for the tomb to be secured, and when Pilate's, uh, with Pilate's permission, the priest placed seal on the large stone covering the entrance. So that's a lot of information about his crucifixion. Yeah, and, and I actually want to say that too about his crucifixion. When you talked about the soldier, like to check when he was dead, that stabbed him with the lance. Mm-hmm. You know that you know that that spear, as it's often referred to, from what I know, like is that the, with, between Catholicism and, and traditional Christianity, the 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 importance of that of that spear that, that Pope Jesus is very prominent in, in Catholicism, but not as so much so in in modern in basic Christianity. Yeah, and um, actually, what's really interesting about that is that spear itself is known. Uh, so the soldier uh, pierced him is known as Longinus, and yeah. so the spear itself is the spear of Longinus, or at least the tip of it, and that's actually. Uh, a really important artifact in conspiracy thinking yes. and in Nazi iconography, uh, mainly because, so I won't spend very much time on it, but Hitler had a sort of occult sect to the SS. Uh, it wasn't run by Hitler. It was run by uh, Heinrich Himmler, who uh, they searched out certain objects within, you know, uh, religious uh, basically they searched out re- religious iconography. And one yeah. of those things that was long out sought for was the spear of Longinus, mm-hmm. mainly because it was thought to like, whoever yeah, holds has it powers. Is, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. past powers. So. Yeah. Because the Christ blood got on the tip of the spear. So it imbued it with, with like almost heavenly kind of divine. Yeah, powers. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yep, I'm familiar. Yeah. Good. I did not know like that they were doing that, but we're going to get to more when I get to mythology, we'll get to more like searches for those kind of sure, things. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Um, yeah. And, and I, I do want to linger on the crucifixion here for, for a moment. So, uh, there's uh, the Christi- the the crucifixion is like a huge huge moment in in yeah and, we'll, and we I I have you know stuff about that in the mythology portion as okay well, so then but, maybe I'll maybe I'll wait yeah, then so until we get yeah, to that we can wait because uh, I do bring up you know because it is a pivotal uh, you know mythos of of Christianity so yeah. I, I promise we'll get there okay and then when we do get there we'll have a, a okay, more broader great, discussion yeah. let's just kind of let's, let's we'll pow- move along yeah let's get power to, through it yeah let's get so, to his resurrection all right so the, his resurrection and the ascension is is another really important uh, uh, aspect to his life and the final part of the Passion Week so Mary Magdalene goes to Jesus's tomb on Sunday morning and is surprised to find it empty despite Jesus's teaching the disciples had not understood that Jesus was right would rise again. In Matthew, there are guards at the tomb. An angel descends from heaven and opens the tomb. The guards faint from fear. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary after they visited the tomb. Jesus then appears to the... Wait, 11... is that supposed to be his mom? Uh, yeah. That's like a rude way. You'd be like, Mary Magdalene <laughs> and the other and Mary. And then the other Mary. Yeah, it's yeah. like, what? You, I know. You know and I also love, well, I also love the non-canonical debate between Mary Magdalene and her her role in all of this. Oh, sure. Too. And I yeah. think, I mean, most notably the what's that uh, that that movie with Jane Silent and Bob? The the dog is it Dogma? Dogma? Yeah, yeah. Where you know the the you know they talk about or she's a descendant of the main lady is like descendant of Mary Magdalene's bloodline, and that's why they have this interesting yeah. thing. I think. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sure. just it's just that's also the uh, the uh, plot line of. Uh... The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. All right. So um, so Jesus then appears to the 11 remaining disciples in Galilee and commissions them to baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity. In Mark, yeah, exactly. In Mark, Zalame and Mary, mother of James, were are with Mary Magdalene in the tomb. Oh, that's a, the other Mary. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mary, mother of James. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was well, like, I assume so. Yeah. yeah anyway. So in the tomb, a young man in a white robe, uh, which is an angel, tells them that Jesus will meet his disciples in Galilee, as he had told them. And Luke, Mary, and uh, and various other women meet two angels at the tomb, but the eleven disciples do not believe their story. Jesus appears to uh, two of his followers in a, a mouse. No, it's not a mouse, but a, a mouse. I don't know how to pronounce this word. Uh, yeah. So he also, it's a place I'm assuming. He also makes an appearance to Peter. Jesus then appears uh, the same day to his disciples in Jerusalem. Although he appears and vanishes mysteriously, he also eats and let them touch him to prove that he is not a spirit. He repeats his command to bring his teaching to all nations. And then in John, Mary is alone at first, but Peter and the beloved disciple come and see the tomb as well. Jesus then appears to Mary at the tomb. He later appeals, appears to uh, the disciples, breathes on them, and gives them the power to forgive and retain sins. In a second visit to his disciples, he proves uh, to a doubting disciple that he is flesh and blood. I don't know how he proves it. Uh, the disciples return to Galilee, where Jesus makes another appearance. He performs a miracle known as the catch of the 153 fish at the Sea of Galilee, a very specific number, after which Jesus encourages Peter to save his uh to serve his followers. So Jesus's ascension to heaven is described in Luke and in Acts and mentioned in uh, Timothy in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, 40 days after after the resurrection, as the disciples look on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And Peter, uh, it states that Jesus has gone into heaven and is the right hand of God. The Acts of the Apostles also describe several appearances of Jesus after his ascension. In Acts, uh, Stephen gazes into heaven and sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God just before his death. Must have been a big hand. On the road uh, to Damascus, the Apostle Paul is converted to Christianity after seeing a blind light and hearing a voice saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In Acts, uh, book 9, chapters 10 through 18, Jesus instructs uh, Ananias of Damascus in a vision to heal Paul. The book of Revelation includes a revelation, a revelation from Jesus concerning the last days. So, it's a lot of information about Jesus, but we had to get through it. So, I, I want to get into the Christianity, or the history of Christianity, the Christianity of history, um, and sort of work through how that developed after the crucifixion of Jesus. So, we have early Christianity, and the first... Uh, era of this was the called the apostol apostolic age so christianity developed during the first century current era as a jewish christian sect of, of the second temple judaism an early jewish christian community was founded in jerusalem under the leadership of the pillars of the church namely james the just and the brother of the lord saint peter and john they had known jesus and according to paul the risen christ had first appeared to james and peter jewish christianity soon attracted gentile god-fearers posing a problem for its Jewish religious outlook, which insisted on close observance of the Jewish commands. Paul the Apostle solved this by insisting that salvation by faith in Christ and participation in his death and resurrection sufficed. At first, he persecuted the early Christians, but after a conversation uh, experienced, he preached to the Gentiles and is regarded as having had a formative effect on the emerging Christian identity as separate from Judaism. Eventually, his departure from Jewish customs would result in the establishment of Christianity as an independent religion. So then we move in the, into the uh, anti-Nicene period. Do you yeah, want to jump in? Yeah, here? I do. Yeah. So before, I we I talked about this with, with Ian off mic, but 
again, you know, Sam has had uh, Sam Harris in his podcast, Making Sense, as one of his earlier episodes, he had a, a, a biblical scholar from UC Chapel Hill on, and um, and he was talking about the spread of Christianity, and, and mainly through scholars, they believe that one of the most important figures of that spread is Paul, and in the sense that he was the one to kind of come up with the central idea of, you know, when people were fearing what Christianity was purposing because of how, you know, kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, hardcore the Old Testament God was, yeah. and how, you know, soft and different in a different approach that Jesus was, Paul was the first person that says that all you have to do is really just believe that Jesus had died for our sins, mm-hmm. and then, you know, that would lead to uh, salvation, and that was a very... You know, they they claim that that was that was very digestible. That was that was something that you can get behind yeah. and, and, and believe. And then, of course, you know, the the, the mythos of that I'll, I'll be covering later. But I think it's important that Paul had a very huge role in the early development of Christianity. Right. So in this uh, ante Nicene, Nicene period, this uh, formative period was followed by the early bishops whom Christians considered the successor of Christ's apostles. From the year 150, Christian teachers began to produce theological and apologetic works aimed at defending the faith. These authors are no, these authors are known as the church fathers, and the study of them is called patristics. According to the New Testament, Christians were uh, were from the beginning subject to persecution by some Jewish and Roman religious authorities. Further widespread persecution of the church occurred under nine subsequent Roman emperors, most intensely under Decius and Dioclesian. Uh, Sorry, I'm butchering that name. Anyway. Uh, so then it spread uh, a little further and there was more acceptance of the Roman Empire. So Christianity spread to Aramaic speaking peoples along the Mediterranean coast and also to the inland parts of the Roman Empire and beyond that into the Parthian Empire and the later uh, Sasanian Empire, including Mesopotamia, which was dominated at different times and to varying extents by these empires. The presence of Christianity in Africa began in the middle of the first century in Egypt and by the end of the second century in the region around Carthage. Uh, which is sort of near uh, Morocco. Um, I think so. Uh, so Mark the Evangelist is claimed to have started the Church of Alexandria in about 43 CE. Various uh, later, later churches claim that this is as their own legacy, including the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria. By 201 or earlier, King Ab- Abgar the Great, uh, Ozeroni, became the first Christian state. King Tarot the Fourth made Christianity the state religion in Armenia between 301 and 314. It was not an entirely new religion in Armenia, having penetrated into the country from at least the third century, but it may have been present even earlier. Constantine the First was exposed to Christianity in his youth, and throughout his life his support for the religion grew, culminating in baptism on his deathbed. During his reign, state-sanctioned persecution of Christians was ended with the Edict of Toleration in 311 and the Edict of Milan in 313. At that point, Christianity was still a minority belief, comprising perhaps only 5% of the Roman population. Influenced by his advisor, Mardonius, Constantine's nephew, Julian, unsuccessfully tried to suppress Christianity. On the 27th of February, 380, Theodosius I Gratian and Valentinian II established Nicene Christianity as the state church of the Roman Empire. As soon as it became connected to the state, Christianity grew wealthily. Uh, the church solicited donations from the rich and could now own land. In terms of prosperity and cultural life, the Byzantine Empire was one of the peaks in Christian history and Christian civilization, and Constantinople remained the leading city of the Christian world in size, wealth, and culture. 
There was a renewed interest in classical Greek philosophy, as well as an increase in literary output in vernacular Greek. Byzantine art and literature held a preeminent place in Europe, and the cultural impact of Byzantine art on the West during this period was enormous and of long-lasting significance. So, yeah. and, I like, and one thing I'll say is, like, yeah. when you talked about Constantinople, I just, I just love that song that kind of teaches you about history. Istanbul was once Constantinople. Constantinople. Yeah. <laughs> Istanbul was once Constantinople. That's a long time ago. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. Great uh, old jazz. Yeah. I love that song. Anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, great anecdote, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now we move into the early Middle Ages with the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire in the West. The papacy became a political player, first visible in Pope Leo's diplomatic duelings uh, with the Huns and the Vandals. The church also entered into a long period of missionary activity and expansion among the various tribes. While Arianus instituted the death penalty for practicing pagans, what would later become Catholicism also spread among the Hungarians, the Germanic, the Celtic, the Baltic, and some Slavic peoples. Around 500, St. Benedict set out uh, his monastic rule, establishing a system of regulations and the foundation uh, for uh, running of the monasteries. Monasticism became a powerful force throughout Europe and gave rise to many early centers of learning, most famously in Ireland, Scotland, and Gaul, which is modern-day France, contributing to the uh, Carolingian, uh, Carolingian uh, sorry, butchering that, renaissance of the 9th century. In the 7th century, Muslims conquered Syria, including Jerusalem, North Africa, and Spain, covering some of the Christian population to Islam, as we spoke about in the yes. last episode, yeah. and uh, placing the rest under a separate legal status. Part of the Muslims' success was due to the exhaustion of the Byzantine Empire in its decades-long conflict with Persia. Beginning in the 8th century with the rise of the Carolingian leaders, the papacy sought greater political support in the Frankish kingdom. The Middle Ages brought about major changes within the church. Pope Gregory the Great dramatically reformed the ecclesiastical structure and administration. In the early 18th uh, 8th century, iconoclasm became a divisive issue when it was sponsored by the Byzantine emperors. In the early 10th century, Western uh, Christian monasticism was further rejuvenated through the leadership of the great Benedictine monastery of Cluny. Of Cluny. Yeah, I think I'm pronouncing that right. So now in the high and late Middle Ages in the West from the 11th century onward, some older cathedral schools became university. For example, University of Oxford, University of Paris, and University, I'm just going to say, Bologna. Previously, I know it's not pronounced that, but I don't know how else to. Previously, higher education uh, had been the domain of Christian cathedral schools or monastic schools led by monks and nuns. Evidence of such schools date back to the 6th century Common Era. These new universities expanded the curriculum to include academic programs for clerics, lawyers, servants, and physicians. The university is generally regarded as an institution that has its origin in the medieval Christian setting. Accompanying the rise of the new towns throughout Europe, many... Uh, Mendicant orders were founded, bringing the consecrated religious life out of the monastery and into the new urban setting. The two principal uh, mendicant wow, I don't even know what that means. Mendicant movements were the Franciscans and the Dominicans, founded by Saint Francis and Saint Dominic, respectively. Both orders made significant contributions to the development of great universities of Europe. Another new order was the uh, Sistercant Sister Sistercurians. Oh my God. Wow, I'm really messing up names uh, this episode. Whose large, isolated monastery spearheaded the settlement of former wilderness areas. In this period, church building and ecclesiastical structure reached new heights, culminating in the orders of Romanesque and Gothic architecture and the building of the great European cathedrals. 
From 1095, under the pontificate of Urban II, not related to Carl Urban, the Crusades were launched. These were a series of military campaigns in the Holy Land and elsewhere, initiated in response to pleas from the Byzantine Empire Alexios I for aid against Turkish expansion. The Crusades ultimately failed to stifle Islamic aggression and even contributed uh, to Christian enmity with the sacking of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade, just as Josh was referring to. So the Christian Church experienced internal uh, conflict between the 7th and 13th centuries that resulted in a schism between the so-called Latin or Western Christian branch, otherwise known as the Catholic Church, and an Eastern, larger Greek branch, otherwise known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. The two sides disagreed on a number of administrative, liturgical, and doctrinal issues, most notably uh, papal primacy of the jurisdiction. The Second Council of of Lyon and the Council of Florence attempted to reunite the churches, but in both cases, the Eastern Orthodox refused to implement the decisions, and the two principal churches remained a schism to the present day. However... The Catholic Church uh, has achieved union with various smaller Eastern churches in the 13th century. A new emphasis on Jesus' suffering, exemplified uh, by the Franciscans' preaching, had the consequence of uh, turning worshippers' attention toward Jews on whom Christians had placed the blame for Jesus' death. Christianity's limited tolerance towards uh, the Jews was not new. Augustine of Hippo said the Jews should not be allowed to enjoy uh, the citizenship that Christians took for granted. But the growing antipathy towards Jews was a factor that led to the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290, uh, the first of many expulsions in Europe. Beginning around 1184, following the crusade against the Cathar heresy, various institutions, broadly referred to as the Inquisition, were established with the aim of suppressing heresy and securing religious and doctrinal unity within Christianity, uh, conversation, and prosecution. There's been a lot of bloodshed on yeah. the interpretation. Also, Christians sure. not liking the Jews very much, it seems like. I guess a lot of not a lot of people like the Jews. Yeah. Yeah, pick up yeah. people. I mean, they've yeah. yeah they, as we've learned in the Judaism episode, they've been prosecuted since damn near the dawn of time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so now we're going to be moving into the Protestant uh, Reformation and Counter Reformation. So the 15th century Renaissance brought brought about the a renewed interest in ancient and classical learning. During the Reformation, Martin Luther uh, posted the 95 uh, theses. Uh, 1517 against the sale of indulgences. Printed copies soon spread through Europe, and in uh, 1521, the Edict of Worms condemned and excommunicated Luther and his followers, resulting in the schism of the Western Christendom into several branches. Other reformers further criticized Catholic teaching and worship. These challenges developed into the movement called Protestantism, which uh, repudiated the primacy of the Pope, the role of tradition, the seven sacraments, and other doctrines and practices. The Reformation in England began in 1534 when King Henry VIII had himself declared the head of the Church of England. Beginning in 1536, the monasteries throughout England, Wales, and Ireland were dissolved. Partly in response to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church engaged in a substantial process to reform and renewal known as the Counter-Reformation. The Council of Trent clarified and reasserted Catholic doctrine. During the following centuries, competition between Catholicism and Protestantism, again, I'm sorry about that, became deeply entangled with political struggles among European states. Meanwhile, (laughs) the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus in 1492 in case you don't know the song, brought about a new wave of missionary activity. Partly from missionary zeal, but under the impetus of colonial expansion by the European powers, Christianity spread the Americas, Oceania, East Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Throughout Europe, the division caused by the Reformation led to outbreaks of religious violence, uh, the establishment of separate state churches in Europe. Lutheranism spread into the northern, central, and eastern parts of present-day Germany, Livonia, and Scandinavia, 
Anglicanism was established in England in 1534. Calvinism and its varieties, such as Presbyterianism, were introduced in Scotland. The Netherlands, Hungary, Switzerland, and France. Arminianism, uh, Arminianism gained followers in the Netherlands and in Frisia. Ultimately, these differences were led uh, to the outbreak of conflicts in which religion played a key factor. The Thirty Years' War, the English Civil War, and the French Wars of Religion are prominent examples. These events uh, intensified the Christian debate on prosecution and toleration. So, uh, the last sort of historical era of Christianity into its current state is known as the post-Enlightenment. In the era known as the Great Divergence, when in the West, the Age of Enlightenment uh, and the Scientific Revolution brought about great societal changes. Christianity was confronted with various forms of skepticism with certain modern political ideologies, such as versions of socialism and liberalism. Events ranged from mere anti-clericalism uh, to violent outbursts against Christianity. We're going to get there, too, because <laughs> I, I, have, uh, I have an interesting... We'll, we'll get there. Great, yeah. I have something interesting about that, so just stay tuned. So, um, uh, events ranged from mere anti clericalism to violent outbursts against Christianity, such as the de-Christianization of France during the French Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, and certain Marxist movements, especially the Russian Revolution and the persecution of Christians in the Soviet Union under state atheism. Damn Russians. So especially pressing in Europe was the formation of, I'm sorry, any Russian listeners, uh, it was the formation Jesus of nation states under the Napoleonic era. All European countries, uh, different Christian denominations, found themselves in competition to greater or lesser extents with each other and with the state variables where uh, were the relative states uh, relative sizes of the denominations and the religious political and ideological orientation of the states the combined factors of the formation of nation states and ultra monetism especially in germany and the netherlands but also in england to a much lesser extent often forced catholic churches organizations and believers to choose between the national demands of the state and the authority of the church specifically the papacy this conflict came to a head in the First Vatican Council, and in Germany would directly lead to the Kulturkampf, where liberals and Protestants under the leadership of Bismarck managed to uh, severely restrict Catholic expression and organization. Real quickly, Kulturkampf uh, just means uh, cultural struggle. And so uh, Christian contentment, uh, commitment to Europe dropped as modernity and secularism came into their own, particularly in the Czech Republic and Estonia. While religious uh, commitments in America have been generally high in comparison to Europe, the late 20th century has shown the shift of Christian adherence to the third world and the southern hemisphere in general, with the West no longer the chief standard bearer of Christianity. So it's a lot of history there. Yeah, you know, I, I'm really glad that you decided to, to actually you know, kind of truncate that. <laughs> for those of you that can't see i gave him a very condescending look because yeah. it, literally i hope everybody's still awake he just plowed through yeah. a lot of information and it's it's clear it's 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 tough you know because like when you when we were looking at judaism and islam i felt that you know i know you sort of covered the history of of that stuff which i tried to truncate yeah truncate and i you know when i'm looking at history i'm like well that's important and that's important and that's important and so i'm just like well i've got to include all of this so yeah apparently yeah, yeah this is why this is yeah, yeah. this that's is okay that's th okay yeah i think maybe the subtitle of this episode would be the most boring episode <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. We're almost right. through your part, and then yeah. we'll get to my fun, you know, actual truncated yeah, we're get into the fun mythology part. Yeah. part. So, 
Uh, real quickly, so I <laughs> I want to get into the denomination. So I know Josh off mic. We were talking about like the the confusion amongst like what exactly which denomination is what. Like what are presidents? What are all these other Christian sects? And so I broke it down. And that's how you truncate that to go yeah. like it's just a, a del- <laughs> it's it's really based on different interpretations, yeah, yeah. which we'll get to uh, briefly. I, yeah. I cover that. See, I, I give like I'll do is I'll give in single example. And then move on. <laughs> anyway, um, can, you can just I, I'll continue. Keep going because he has another six pages of notes. <laughs> I to don't read. have another six pages. It's only like two. <laughs> so the four primary divisions of Christianity are the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodoxy. I'm sorry about the name. I don't know why they call it that. And the Protestantism. A broader distinction that is sometimes drawn is between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, which has its origins in the East-West schism of the 11th century. However, there are other present and historical Christian groups that do not fit neatly into one of these primary categories. We won't worry about those. So uh, there's the Catholic Church. Again, it consists of particular churches headed by bishops in communion with the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, as its highest authority in matters of faith, morality, and church governance. Like the Eastern Orthodoxy, the Catholic Church, uh, through apostolic uh, apostolic, uh, succession, traces its origins to the Christian community founded by Jesus Christ. Catholics maintain that the the one holy Catholic and apostolic church founded by Jesus subsists fully in the Catholic Church, but also acknowledges other Christian churches and communities and works towards reconciliation among all Christians. The Catholic faith faith is detailed in in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The 2,834 seeds are grouped into 24 particular autonomous churches, each with its own distinct traditions regarding the liturgy and the administering of sacraments. With more than 1.1 billion baptized members, the Catholic Church is the largest Christian church and represents over half of all Christians, as well as one-sixth of the world's population. So now we have the Eastern Orthodox Church. It consists of those churches in communion with the patriarchal sees of the East, such as the... Uh, Ecumenical, ecumenical patriarch of, of Constantinople. Like the Catholic Church, the Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox also traces its heritage to the foundation of Christianity through apostolic, apostolic succession and as a, an episcopal structure, uh, though the autonomy of its component parts is emphasized, and most of them are, natural, are national churches. A number of conflicts within Western Christianity over questions of doctrine and authority culminated in the Great Schism. Eastern Orthodoxy is the second largest single denomination in Christianity with an estimated 225 to 300 million adherents. Uh, so now we have Oriental Orthodoxy, and those are the Eastern churches that recognize the, uh, the first three ecumenical accounts, uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, and Ephesus, uh, but they reject the dogmatic definitions of the Council of uh, Chalcedon and instead espouse a Miaphysite Christology. Which do you have any idea what that means? No idea. I, I, See, they, that, they, and some of the, them, and some the, of them didn't even have links that links I could look that, into. Okay, because that's yeah. what I was calling out. Because it's like sometimes it's really difficult when you're when we're yeah. Anyway, that, and that's the thing. You that's know, the problem I, where it's yeah. yeah. All right. So now now we have Protestantism. And so in 1521, as I was talking about earlier, the Edict of Worms condemned Martin Luther and officially banned citizens of the Holy Roman Empire from defending or propagating his ideas. Uh, this split with the Roman Catholic Church is now called the Reformation. Pro, uh, prominent reformers include Martin Luther, Holdrych uh, Zwingli, and John Calvin. The 1529 uh, uh, protestation of Spire against being excommunicated gave his party name the Protestantism. 
Luther's primary theological heirs are known as Lutherans. Zwingli and Calvin's heirs are far broader denominationally and referred to as the Reformed tradition. The term Protestant also refers to any churches which formed later, with either the magisterial or radical traditions. In the 18th century, for example, Methodism grew out of uh, Anglican minister John Wesley's evangelical and revival movement. Several Pentecostal and non-denominational churches, which emphasize the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, in turn grew out of Methodism. Because Methodists, Pentecostals, and other evangelicals stress accepting Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, which comes from Wesley's emphasis on the new birth, they often refer to themselves as being born again. Estimates of the total number of Protestants are very uncertain, but it seems clear that Protestantism is the second largest group of Christians after Catholicism in, uh, in numbers of followers, although the Eastern Orthodox Church is larger than, larger than any single Protestant denomination. Often that number is put at more than 800 million, corresponding to nearly 40% of the world's Christians. The majority of Protestants are numbers uh, members of just a handful of denominational families, that is Adventists, Anglicans, Baptists, Reformed, Lutherans, Methodists, and Pentecostals. Non-denominational, evangelical, charismatic, neo-charismatic, independent, and other churches are on the rise and constitute a significant part of Protestant Christianity. Some groups of individuals hold basic Protestant uh, tenets, identify themselves simply as Christians or born-again Christians. They typically distance themselves from the confessionalism and creedalism of the other Christian communities by calling themselves non-denomination or evangelical. Often founded by uh, individual pastors, they have little affiliation with historical dominations. Yep. So you've spoken for almost yeah. about an hour. So yeah, there we <laughs> and go. was getting pretty minutes. No, but, yeah. But honestly, uh, <sighs> look, let's before you know that was just a lot of information that we that we had put out there, and so I think this is a perfect time coming up in the hour mark just to take five. Take a, yeah. Like, let's take deep breaths, process what we just learned, and then when we come back, we're going to get into some fun stuff. I'm going to be covering kind of, like, mythology. Like the uh, nitty-gritty. And, yeah, the yeah. nitty-gritty of, like, certain mythological aspects of Christianity, and then we'll kind of have a broader discussion. So, all right, guys, we will see you in a little bit. Yep. Bye. Hey everyone, Josh and Ian here, and if you're hearing this, whether you're a first-time listener or you're a seasoned bullshitter, we want to thank you for listening, and honestly, we could not do this without you. Mm-hmm. And we just wanted to take a minute to explain to you guys the goal of the podcast and share some ways that you might be able to support us. Now, we want to promote self-education, intellectual skepticism, and deep conversations. Very deep. Very, very deep. Because we have found that within our current culture, it's been increasingly more difficult to talk to one another. I mean, I, sh- I have to talk to Ian the whole time. Yeah, and I have to listen to him. So if you're enjoying our content and our podcast goals do resonate with you, we are working to expand. So there are a few ways to help us grow. Yes, you can follow us on social media over at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at NecessaryBSPod. Or you can visit our website and subscribe at www.NecessaryBSPodcast.com. And hey, and if you're already at our website, you might as well hop over to the support page. And you can either give a one-time donation via PayPal, or you can just subscribe to our Patreon, which is brand new. And we have different tiers, which includes perks and benefits for those wonderful enough to want to give us your money. As much money as you possibly can, please. All of it. But you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And we're on all other major podcast platforms. Lastly, you can reach out to Ian and I personally at NecessaryBSPodcast at gmail.com. Now, can we get enough of this talking and get back to us talking? Yeah. Let's get back to the bullshit. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Welcome, welcome back, back from the, the break. Yeah.
Um, let's kind of just jump into this because I know we got a lot of content to cover here and I would like to get huh. to just our even more content, yeah. even more content. However, um, as you'll see, I, I took the time to explain things and, and truncate stuff. <laughs> just kidding. It's just, it's just a layman over there. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. That's okay. You know, I got, I got to poke fun when I can poke fun. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, my, my part focused on, on mainly on Christian mythology, which is a term essentially encompassing a broad variety of legends and stories from the Bible, mainly dealing with those considered to be sacred narratives, famously and most notably the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christian mythology has influenced many artists and storytellers throughout the years. And then over the centuries, Christianity has divided into different denominations in which the main difference being uh, being what is considered to be canon when it comes to traditional biblical narratives. For example, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians include the Book of Judith and the Book of Talbot from the Old Testament as canon, when Protestant dominations typically do not. Also, good to know that the Book of Judith isn't considered to be in the Hebrew canon as well, and although the Book of Talbot isn't necessarily in the Hebrew canon, primarily due to because of its late authorship, in 1952 there was a discovery of some Arabic and, and, and Hebrew fragments of Talbot among the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in the cave of... Um, um, uh, Qumran, north of the Dead Sea, hence the name of the scrolls, provided new evidence that the book has much earlier origins and many Jews in Israel have sought to reclaim Tabit as canon. So it's just very interesting when you see different books that have been kind of taken in and taken out. And I know that the, some of the New Testament may have this as well. So, and again, we, I think we briefly touched about this a while ago, but it, it's still fascinating to think when you're going into mythology and, and all we have are these, these scriptures that have been written and, you know, just the, the, the playing of them and, and what's prevalent, what's not prevalent has developed and changed through time, depending on the King and, and all this different stuff. And, and that's, that's <clears throat> stuff that I didn't know until much later that, that things have been messed around with as much as they have. been. Yeah. I mean, largely, uh, what was uh, kept in the New Testament was uh, organized by Constantine. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so yeah, ahead. the cosmology of the New Testament is is considered is considered to be axis mundi, meaning a certain type of belief or philosophy in which the world is the center connecting point between heaven and earth as a celestial and, geo and, and geographical pole, expressing a point of connection between the sky and the earth. Basically, earth is the center, and it points up to heaven and down to hell, with realms getting in between the two. Heaven uh, with God and his angels, and hell with Satan and his demons. And demon and angels are considered <clears throat> supernatural beings in the sense of being able to alter the nature of man. Demons can possess you, and Satan can inspire evil thoughts within you, while God, on the other hand, uh, inspires a guide purpose and sometimes granting visions and in as in the cases with jesus giving somebody the supernatural power of his spirit christians believe um that this eon is held in bondage by satan sin and death and is heading towards its end which takes the form and in, in, in a cosmic kind of c catastrophe sounds um, terrible and terrifying. yeah the judgment will come down <clears throat> from the heavens the dead will rise and the last judgment will take place and man will either enter into eternal salvation or damnation very black and white here yeah um which leads into um christian eschatology which is a major branch of Christian theology studying and discussing death and the afterlife, heaven and hell, the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the death, the rapture, um, uh, the, tri the tribulation, and essentially meaning a different period just before the end of the world. Basically, uh, the tribulation just means that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Right. 
Um, and then you have <laughs> millennialism, which is uh, kind of meaning a heaven on earth scenario before the last judgment, which isn't believed by all de denominations. And I cover kind of millennialism more uh, below to not okay. be confused with the with the term millennials for, for generations, which I'll get to. And, and that kind of like focuses more on the study of like the end of the world, the last judgment and the new world to new world to follow. Some literary mentions within the Christian theology include, but aren't limited to, John Mills' Paradise Lost, um, Dante Alighieri's Alighieri. uh, Divine Comedy, and, and John Byron's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and C.S. Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress. Now, C.S. Lewis, um, I didn't put this here, but it also mentions the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right. is very similar because it talks about, you know, kind of saving the death and resurrection. Um, however, uh, C.S. Lewis has, has been known to state that he doesn't, he doesn't say, claim that uh, religious influence is, is, is part of that. When Total a, bullshit. When, <laughs> yeah, when a lot of people... Uh, you know. Can I just say something about that real quick? So, I, I, as a kid, when the first Lion, Witch, the Wardrobe movie came out... I, you know, I very much liked it because it was like, oh, it's cool. It's fantasy. It's sort of like Lord of the Rings, but different. And then, you know, I watched the next one. It was like some Prince Caspian or something like that. I can't remember. Or like The Witch Returns, something. And I was like, okay, well, this is not that great. It seems a little different. And then the third one came out and I went to go see it with a friend of mine. I was like, why don't we just go see this? You know, because like it's the third one, you know, why yeah. not? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at the end of it. You know, so like Aslan has disappeared for like a long time. Who's like the lion and he's portrayed by Liam Neeson and everything like that. And, and he's like, he's been gone. And then at the end he like sort of shows back up and he's like, Oh cool. You know, nice deus ex machina here to save the world. And, and anyway, well he tells the kids, you know, who are growing up, it's like, Hey, look, like you have to go away and, and you can't ever come back. You're getting too old to come back to Narnia. Right. They're like, well, damn it. And he's like, don't worry in that world. You'll know me by another name. <laughs> And I'm like, God damn it. This is way too on the fucking nose. Like, Religious mythology. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so, yeah, uh, yeah. C.S. Lewis is a bullshitter. But anyway, go ahead. Then you have Haggy. Oh, God. I, I even phonetically yeah. put this up because it's, it's a tough word to say. Hagiography. 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 There we go. Hagiography. Um, essentially, Can you say that a, th a fourth time? <laughs> I know. Essentially meaning it's, it's, it's legends about saints and Christian heroes, okay. um, which, which have many mythological elements, mainly revolving <laughs> around miracles performed, uh, provided by the love and the power of God. Um, a lot of Christian mythology influences many stories and fables from the medieval era, most famously being King Arthur and his quest for the Holy Grail. Gotcha. Which is what I mentioned earlier about different quests. So a yeah. lot of the Knights at the Round Table, a lot of lot of medieval storytelling is, has heavily Christian uh, theology influence and, and mythology. Um, the cosmology of Christianity is the same as Judaism, but differs with the birth of Jesus because Christians believe that the, the birth of Jesus is, is noted as the <coughs> second big um, cosmology. Cosm cosmological oh my god cosmological cosmological that's a tongue twister event in christianity interestingly enough the book of genesis does not identify the tempting serpent in the garden of eden as satan but christian tradition is the one that equates the two yeah um Many, re many reoccurring myths involve sacred mountains as sites of revelation, such as Moses and the Ten Commandments, or Jesus' ascent of the mountain to deliver his famous Sermon on the Mount, which is his moral teachings from the book of Matthew. Then, of course, there is Christ's ascensions into the heavens from the Mount of Olives. Then you have what is called combat myth. Which combat myth basically revolves around stories of the divine battling monsters, uh, oftentimes monsters as actual monsters or people that represent chaos. 
um, which is prevalent in many uh, in religious contexts, such as you can take David and Goliath, Mosing, Moses freezing the Jew, free, freezing, freezing the Jews. <laughs> it is hot in Egypt. Mo yeah. Moses freeing the Jews from from Egypt, and even some scholars suggesting the idea of Satan being God's opponent may have been developed <laughs> under this idea of of the combat myth. Um, Right, in the, because in a lot of translations, uh, Satan is most notably known as the adversary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and the book of Revelation uses many combat myth imagery, and it's depicting of the, the cosmic conflict, um, such as Amula Elish, which is a Babylonian creation story discovered on clay tablets in 1849 and what is now considered modern-day Iraq. Um, depicted a creation story of a battle between gods focusing on the supremacy of Marduk, which Marduk is a late generation Meso Mesopotamian god. And the creation of man is designed to serve of the Mesopotamian deities. And Mesopotamian deities were human-like creatures, but possessed uh, extraordinary powers, and they were uh, they were known to be very large. Mm -hmm. um, and then let's get back here to to Christian theology depicts Jesus in the time between his his, his crucifixion as his Crucifixion. <laughs> His... <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, again, now I'm also... Yeah. His, uh crucifixion and his resurrection uh, he descends into hell and brought salvation to all the righteous who had died since the beginning of the world who has been cut off from heaven due to the taint of original sin um, interestingly enough scripture never specifies his liberation of the dead but in the new testament peter um, 4 6 says good tidings were proclaimed to the dead supporting the claim that is referred as the harrowing of hell which i will say that the harrowing of hell is not really considered canonical um, however, it's very similar to to Moses's night journey um, where, you know, between this period. And I did not know this where, you know, Jesus suspected to go down. And because, again, mm -hmm. you talk about the Old Testament where Shriol is the Old Testament didn't. And I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but there wasn't really a direct interpretation of an immediate afterlife. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> it, it's almost depicted as Jesus going down to Shriol and, and freeing all the souls uh, of the divine that were trapped there since the original sin. Um, the most important myth in Christianity. So this is where we're going to get to your, your point yeah, here. Yeah. So the most important myth in Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus, which, um, which a God who dies and, and is resurrected are common themes throughout many religions. Scholars such as David Leeming has written about this in his article, dying God in the Oxford uh, companion to world mythology saying, and I quote, Christ can be seen as bringing fertility, through um through of a spiritual nature and as opposed to a physical one yeah so i wanted to i i brought this up earlier because i i wanted to talk about the importance of the crucifixion and the and the resurrection here so one of the things i think why it's so important is because this is that very event sort of defines what christian faith is so um we had a, a series a, a little while ago on this debate about Marxism and, and, and meaning and happiness uh, with Nietzsche. And, and, uh, but it was also uh, it started off with that debate between Jordan Peterson and Savoy Zizek. And in that debate, they, you know, they were talking about Christianity a little bit. And, and Zizek made this comment. Who, he didn't just make it there. He's made it before and in his writings and everything because he's very much he's an atheist, but he's very interested in the, in the Christian belief and, mm -hmm. and how important it is. And in it, he talks about the crucifixion and uh, and how there is this moment when Jesus is on the cross and he feels there's a moment of doubt that it feels like, am I like, what am I doing this for? Like, why did God send me here to do this? You know, like, I, am I really the son of God? You know, like, 
you know, like, why is God just letting me die, basically? And that moment is what's experienced as this um, abysmal atheism, basically where God himself, you know, because Jesus is God, right? And so God himself becomes an atheist for a moment where, like, that doubt, that planting of doubt is like, oh, my God, this could be all for nothing sort of thing. And I think the point here is to realize that, you know, in order to move forward and one to be a good Christian, but also like to have meaning in your life is to overcome that moment. Yeah. And to actually like, uh, you know, you recognize that, you know, that abyss of, of potentially like nothingness and, and lack of meaning and, and like, okay, no, you know what? No, I am going to have faith. Yeah. And they kind and, of re- reiterate yeah. that. So it's a continuing mm-hmm. on the, the life and death of Jesus, according to Sandra Frankel, which is a Christian author is considered the, the founding myths uh, right. quote unquote of Christianity were life being structurally equivalent to creation myths of other religions and the sense of the pivot around when the religion turns to which it then returns. And okay. so I think, again, like you described, that pivotal structure is like that even micro moment of uh, that's when it, 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 it leaves and then it returns. Yeah. It comes back. Yeah. It's, a, it's a momentary lapse. <clears throat> and Tom Kane, another writer, also touches on founding myths in a more broad context, referring to the war in heaven and the fall of man as themes of, and I quote, the disastrous consequences of diso- uh, disobedience. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is a common theme, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's a common theme of God in general. And I think you know, is, Islam is 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 very predicated on that the the disastrous consequences of disobedience, and and you can see that that is very very in the mythos of of you know of Christianity that is very prevalent. Of what happens when you when you disobey? Um, uh, Jesus's death also rings through with religious myths such as God who sacrifices Himself for love. Um, Jesus being born to a, to a, atone for original sin is the center crux of the Christian narrative. And of course, the original sin being that of Adam disobeying God and eating the fruit in the garden, essentially turning humanity into a flawed state of moral imperfection. Right. Yeah, so and that is really just the crux of that, where he's, his sacrifice was for our sins. Mm-hmm. So Orthodox Christians view Jesus as the savior of humanity from final death and damnation by dying for them. Many Christians believe Christ's sacrifice supernaturally reversed death's power over humanity and provided when he was resurrected and abolished the power of sin on humanity. Paul says in Romans 5.15, if the many died by the trespass of of one man, how many more did God's grace and the gift that came from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And the atonement myth is is prevalent in the letter from Paul and the Gospel of Matthew, even in the Last Supper, because Jesus is and before Jesus's death, Matthew accounts Jesus calling his blood the blood of the new covenant, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of many. And John's Gospel as well, when Jesus speaks of himself as the living bread, Jesus speaks of himself as the living bread that came down from heaven, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So. Then we get to that. Uh, so in Catholicism in particular, every single mass gathering, right. they participate in the ritual <laughs> of the blood and the bread of, of God, um, his uh, blood being you know, the, the, the symbolism of the wine and, uh, and the bread being the symbolism of his flesh. And again, those or two crackers or crackers. Um, <laughs> yeah. But those two things uh, represent, again, just this huge idea of him atoning for our sins. That's, that's yeah. the strong direct symbolism there. And then, of course, in other Christian denominations, you know, I think it's Easter. Easter sermons are, is when they mainly do uh, the communion practice. 
Um, at least from the church that I went to, the only time that they really did that was the Easter was service. During Easter, yeah, Easter during service. his res because Easter is a represent which we get. You know, I'm going to briefly cover holidays, but it gets to yeah. uh, from what I know, Easter is supposed to represent his resurrection. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's like it's Passover, right? It's yes. Like when he dies and goes in the tomb, and then Easter is the resurrection. Yes, Easter is the resurrection. <laughs> um, so interestingly, in the early modern period, roughly the late 15th century to early 18th century, Christian theologians developed elaborate um, witch mythologies, which contributed to the um, <laughs> manifestation of witch hunts and major works in Christian uh, demonology found evidence of witch rhetoric in the Bible, most notably being that in Exodus twenty two eighteen, 18, quoting, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. <laughs> most Christian denominations. Don't like the witches. Yes. Don't like the witches, which I think of the Salem witch trial and, and yeah. things like that. Where we, So that's the mythos too is, you know, I, I always forget about that aspect of, of Christianity, of yeah. them being the, the number one persecutors of, of anybody of, they believe to be witchcraft or, or, or do yeah. aspects of, of devilish demonic. So Wiccans and Christians don't get along. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's where, because most Christians believe that, that witchcraft is, is, is the power, the supernatural power of witchcraft is, is der derived from demons and Satan. It's a, yeah. it's a demonic in nature. Um, most Christian denominations hold some belief for an immediate afterlife, even though Christian scripture gives a few, very few descriptions of an immediate afterlife. And for the most part, both the New and Old Testaments focus more on the myth of final bodily resurrection that um, of a purely th that as opposed to a purely spiritual afterlife away from the body. I found this equally fascinating. So I'm just give this last little bit of those and I want to touch base on this. Yeah. As we've learned in other um, Judaism, uh, as we learned in our other Judaism episodes, Episode, the Old Testament doesn't express a belief in personal afterlife uh, in the sense of reward and punishment. The New Testament also gives little attention to an immediate afterlife, but does include calling heaven a place of peaceful um, residence where Jesus goes to prepare a home for his disciples. Many Christian um, narratives of, of heaven include green pasture, uh, land fitting with symbolism of the Lord as our shepherd and humanity being his herd. Um, so, but kind of before we go back to there, I think that that is interesting to, you know, because you always hear about the, you know, again, when we get to millennial, millennialism, we'll, we'll talk about kind of the, the depending doom of the end of the earth. But, you know, I always kind of assume or connect this Christianity to like when you die, you go to heaven, you go to hell. You know what I mean? Depending on how you follow. But just learning that, you know, a lot of the source material, you didn't really focus on an immediate spiritual afterlife, but more focused on, you know, everybody coming back, which I think is very, you know, very, I think the Mormon church is, is probably the, the most specific on that claim uh -huh. of like, oh, those that believe them will survive and, and, and do that when other denominations have, have reverted back to maybe focusing on that spiritual afterlife. But that is just an, it is an interesting dichotomy yeah. there. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So if a friend of mine, when I was living in Portland, Oregon, uh, there was a friend of mine who I did music with and his father was like this pretty religious guy. I mean, he, he, he seemed to believe in, in science, you know, just fine. But, you know, I would get into conversations with him. It's like, well, what about this? What about that? Like, how can you believe this? And uh, I, as sort of like a new atheist as myself. And uh, and I asked him one time, I'm like, what about all these fucking planets? Dude, there's aliens and everything. He's like, what are you talking about, man? Like, after we die and go to heaven, that's all for us. Like, God is going to take us through, throughout the heavens. And that's where we're going to like, uh, it's all that stuff out there. I'm like, what? It just oh, it was like, like so, very interesting. interesting, like the stars and the source and what we see in the sky is more of like a like a like a vague light of heaven. Yeah, like the like the literal heavens above us. Yeah, like that was sort of a a a physical interpretation of it. Like, no, that's where we go. 
God takes us to the heavens. Yeah, axis mundi is is right. the yeah. the Greek interpretation yeah. of that understanding. Latin, of, that's Latin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Latin. Sorry, yeah. did I say Greek. Yeah, you did. Yeah. All right. I'm did my theater arts background. We just I was all I know is the Greeks. So that's who I say did everything. Right. Yeah. They did do a lot. Sandwiches. The Greeks. So, pizza. Pizza. Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> glad we um, went to the same place. I'm glad, anyway. we, I'm glad we both went to pizza. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, moving on. Um, then and then and the, also in Christian mythology, there's there's the second coming of Christ, in which Christ will return to Earth during the period of, of transformation preceding the end of this uh, the end of this world and the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on Earth. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is on trial before the Roman and Jewish um, authorities, he claims, and I quote, In the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, of the Mighty One and continuing on the clouds of heaven. Basically alluding to a heaven on earth, which also gave way to the legend of the wandering Jew, which I found this very fascinating. So <laughs> the legend of the wandering Jew begins to spread in Europe around the 13th century, and, and it revolves around a Jewish man who taunted Jesus on the way to his... Um, crucifixion what? <laughs> and he is then cursed being turned immortal and has to walk the earth until the second coming of christ so the theory goes that there's an immortal jew who's, who's just who's walking <laughs> who around man? and waiting for the second coming yeah, yeah. like that's that's fascinating who is this man but there's not you know i didn't go into again i wanted to truncate this so i just got a brief understanding of his origins but at some point it would be fun to look into this man it and, sounds and like it's very similar to this whole thing like how christians blame the jews for uh for jesus yeah. death yeah it sounds, sounds like this sort of yeah like sort of folds into that narrative uh, conspiracy yeah. yeah so the heaven on earth and in, in, in christian scripture is described that god will abolish the current natural law in favor of one of immortality and total peace which leads us into the concept of christian millennialism basically uh, millennialism is believing in the and in, in the immediate end and understanding jesus more as an apocalyptic preacher right. and and the name comes from the thousand year reign of christ that according to the book of revelations will precede the final world renovation which this uh, through um the, which this through thought conformed many comforted many christians during the time of their their most uh, strongest persecutions however it's most noted that the longer the world goes without ending the more millennialism has tend to dwindle and the focus has shifted right. from jesus being more of an apocalyptic figure to jesus being more of what we now modern day consider him as as the savior of of either going up to heaven for salvation or going down to hell for damnation as more of a, a spiritual <laughs> immediate afterlife now uh the last thing i have here is of the uh the mccrell uh Elodie, I don't the Micri Messi Elodie. Oh my God, it doesn't matter. Mercea, yeah, Mercea Elodie. So this is where I wanted this last. He refers to Marxism as a truly mosaic Judeo-Christian ideology, as Marxism pulls from many teachings taught from Jesus throughout the New Testament. Marxism has been lead to Judeo-Christian ideology. I could, I could. See that just in my readings of Jesus. I mean, sure. Uh, sorry, I mean, not of Jesus, but of Marx. I mean, uh, you know, Marx again, like it was this very much about class struggle. Well, so and... I, 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 what I interpret that at is that they start like Jesus and, 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 and Karl Marx start from the same premise, but then they just kind of they differ on their pathway to achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, but at the same time, though, you know, Jesus has been known to, obviously, like, uh, the New Testament, really, you know, a lot of damnation uh, on the wealthy. 
um, you know, you should be giving your money to to less fortunate and that this I, this concept of charity, you know, is, is not only prevalent in, in many religions, but it's 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 also very important to to uh, Jesus's teachings, yeah. you know, as far as, as, as giving, you know, a portion of, of, of yourself to others. And that is the righteous thing to do. Um, so you do have this kind of interesting dichotomy of what's righteous and and now our modern interpretation of 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 how do you navigate you know our our liberal democracy with these kind of you know because again Jesus's teachings doesn't really mean that you're going to be very fruitful in the in the liberal dem democratic capitalistic sense. Oh yeah. I so mean, Jesus was not a liberal or a capitalist or anything like that. No, know? no, he wasn't. And I would say like in and you know not to not to be too controversial because the word is tainted, but if you actually refer to the original context of what socialism is supposed to mean, you would almost consider you know, uh, Jesus to be very socialistic in nature. I mean, yeah, he was a, like a hippie socialist. Person. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's why I think it's, it's interesting where you talk about, you know, for me when, you know, and earlier when I, when I brought up some of the hip, hypocrisy of, of, of Christianity, you know, it just, it revolves around, you know, nitpicking and focusing, but to me, it mainly revolves around that, that concept of, of his teaching of, of, of more socialistic ideas of, of community and and the, the one thing I noticed with Christianity is it, it's divided. So that divide is they are very charitable, but most often charitable within their own beliefs. Like people that believe in Jesus are trying to convert them to believe. And then, you know, outside of that realm, it's not as prevalent, um, you know, like donating money to different places or different causes. Right. However, you know, the outside of my notes from my note from personal stuff, the other you know mythology thing that I want to cover here is kind of like the Holy Trinity. Because it gets kind of confusing. Sure. Uh, before you do that, I wanted to, to talk about the whole millennialism. Thing sure. Yeah. Second, because course. I think, you know, that we get the term not only for his thousand year reign, but also I think from, from the understanding, if I remember correctly, uh, is that, you know, after Jesus's death, it was supposed to be like his second coming was supposed to be around a thousand years after that. You know, so you would think of that is uh, in the early 2000s. Right. And so I think, um, uh, you know, biblical scholars and 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 really you know close holding on to the teachings of Jesus after a while he's like where why isn't he here yet right you know and so there there becomes to be a lot of doubt you know of course like you still are those like really strict adherents to it you know that like oh no he's don't worry he's coming along he's coming along he's going to bring about the apocalypse it's all going to be great so yeah and yeah. other people that I've heard that kind of uh, that kind of try to find a sense of justification for the for how long the second coming of Christ is initially taking is is referring to the Old Testament and how when it says that the world was created in seven days that the concept of a day um, is not what we consider as a 24 hour period right. where it's just yeah. like the the God of being an immortal being uh, it, the time that we perceive time is not equivalent to, to how maybe biblically we would perceive time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that argument is made too, like when you're talking about like some of the early uh, figures in, and Judaism, you know, people like Methuselah who lived to several hundred years old. It's like, well, like those years aren't really the same years that we think of today because one, our calendars are different. And two, people think of years as much different than, especially in terms of God's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, interpretation on years and stuff like that. Yeah. And the one thing, you know, I, I didn't write down in the notes because it was very, kind of very, again, because, uh, Christianity is is, is built on on Judaism, like it's just the yeah. extension uh, yeah. of believing in Jesus. So um, that this whole idea of of the spiral view of time and these ritualistic things they they kind of cross over. However, the most notable difference is that even though certain 
you know, holidays are a, a tribute to, to the light uh, and the d- divine, Christians do on average view time more linearly. Uh, li- li- linearly. Yeah. God damn, I cannot say that word. Linear, li- I mean, you could just say they view more linear. time more linear. Yeah. 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 I was going to say yeah. linear, li- linearly. Yeah. I don't even know that's a no, word. I don't know. But, they, word, they, yeah. but they view time more, more linear. So, um, and I, I just think that it's, it's, you know, as far as holiday goes, what's interesting about Christian holidays. Wait, from, did you want to talk about the Trinity first? Oh, I guess I can. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me about yeah. that. You know, I just got on this again, like we just talked about <laughs> kind of uh, during the break before we came back here, which is like, yeah, you know, sometimes we just get going and, and you're like, I've been down this rabbit hole so far. I forgot where I started. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to kind of break down because for me as a kid learning, uh, when I went to the youth group for a first time, I think I was, uh, uh, maybe 16, I think 16. The first time I, uh-huh. I went to a youth group and started learning, I was confused by the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. I'm just like, how is Jesus God, but then also his son. And then where's the spirit? Like, I don't think I know what the Holy spirit is. And so I like, so for me, it was just confusing Isn't it because the Holy spirit is within Jesus. That makes him God. Yes. Yeah. That's the yeah. Trinity. Cause they all combine to make that thing. They all kind of work within each other. Um, and that was difficult. I still don't to know learn. what the Holy spirit is though. Right. right. I, I mean, like, yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not directly sure, but I, I think what it is, is I think it's just the, it's just like the representation of the divinity of God and, and the Holy spirit within Jesus is what allowed him to perform these miracles, you know, such as walking on water, you know, making, yeah. uh, 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 curing the blinds so the blind can see, you know, I think he, I think he even cures people of leprous, I think, uh, leprosy, leprosy. Yeah. 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 Leprous. I think that's a Pokemon. <laughs> that's Lapras. I was thinking about Lapras, the, the Pokemon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Leprosy. I think he's known to cure leprosy and, Sorry, and right. And, and a lot of other, and a lot of other things. And, and that's kind of the Holy spirit, but the Trinity is, is huge in the mythos too. And that's, mm-hmm. and, and more so in Catholicism because they represent that you know, with their, with their, you know, oh, the touching the, of, the, yes. of the body. And yeah. isn't it like, they're trying to like tracing out the cross. Aren't they, they are. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, you know, it's, it's Holy spirit. They have like a, a saying that's goes with it. I don't know. My, I, this is a funny yeah. anecdotal story. I just want to tell. So I, my best friend in high school, his family was Catholic, very religious. And I have it, a similar story. I'll, yeah. Okay. And so they, they were actually at one of the biggest Catholic churches in uh, the part of in central Oregon where, where, where I, where I grew up. And, and he said, Hey, you know, if you want to hang out with me, you should come to mass with me. And I was like, Oh, I don't know what that is. Like, I don't think I should mass, go. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't, you know, again, I was new at the time. And so uh, my first kind of, Catholic mass experiences, you know, he leaned over to me and he goes, Hey, we're about to do communion. And I go, what's communion. And he's like, Oh, it's where we partake in, you know, the, the ritualistic of, of the blood and body of Christ. And I was like, well, that sounds morbid. Um, but, and he's like, no, How no, you? like 15, 16. Yeah. I was, I was like 15, you know yeah. what I mean? And again, I let listeners know this is my first kind of experience with it. So right. you can imagine, you know, not growing up with it and really understanding it and hearing it for the first time when I'm 15, it, it just sounds, it's all interesting and, and just fascinating. So, and he's like, no, 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 it's the representation. The blood is the wine and the, and the body's the cracker. And it's about, I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, by the way, uh, you're not confirmed, are you? And I'm like, what? Confirm? What does that mean? And he goes, then you're not confirmed. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's fine. He's like, yeah, most Catholic, he's like, some people are confirmed, even if they're not direct Catholicism. But he's like, so by the way. So you didn't, did you partake in communion? So here's the thing. Let yeah. me, let me keep going on here. I said, I know what that means. Yeah. So sure. I said, no, I'm not confirmed. And he goes, okay, well, here's the kicker is this is what he told me. Now I know that it's wrong at the time. We'll get to this part of the story. Yeah. He tells me that if it's your first time in mass, you have to go up for communion. However, don't he, this is what he said to me. Don't eat the cracker or you're going to spend eternity in hell. Cause you're not confirmed. What you need to do, 
It's, and I'm just like, oh my, oh my God. gosh, this is some scary stuff. And he tells me that all I got to do is when I get up to, when I get up to the, up to the, my portion in line, I got to cross my arms. You make a cross with your arms, uh, in front of your body. Uh-huh. And it lets them know that, that you are like Christian. You're not Catholic. You're not a confirmed Catholic. Yeah. And then they'll know to bless you instead of, of having you partake in the communion. So the, the priest this must is, have been a harrowing experience. Oh my Josh. gosh. It was, it was, I was stressful. <laughs> it was awkward. It was uncomfortable. And, and, and the reason being is, is that at first the, the priestess is holding the cracker up for me to take it. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing there nervous with my arms crossed. And I'm like, do I say anything? Do I not say anything? And he's not directly kind of looking at me. And then I see on his face that he can tell that like, he's slightly getting agitated that nobody that I haven't taken the cracker out of uh-huh. his hand yet. Yeah. And I knew I was, I, I knew I was kind of in trouble because he looked at me and he saw, and he immediately looked down and noticed my hands crossed across my body. And I hear him sigh. He puts the cracker down. <laughs> he walks up to me and he blesses me. And he does a, you know, he, he says his, he utters this phrase. And, holy water on you. In there? Yeah. Like yeah. he dips his finger in the yeah. thing and, and he uses a thumb to create a cross on my forehead. And then he smacks me and he goes right in the forehead. <laughs> And I'm just standing there in utter shock. And I just like turn around and walk back. And Matt is laughing. <laughs> and and I'm like, I just got smacked by a Catholic priest. This just happened to me. This could have been worse. And then as soon as I sit down mortified, Matt leans over. He goes, oh, by the way, in the future, that's totally optional. I'm like, what? And he goes, you don't have to go up into communion if you don't want to. <laughs> That's great. So that is how my friend tricked me into getting slapped by a Catholic priest. That is that is so fantastic. That's I, I love that story. Yeah. So I I I had a not an entirely similar situation, but 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 related. So I grew up in this very small town in southern Oregon called Paisley. It was founded by uh, Scottish and Irish. By ranchers. Brad Paisley? No, but not by Brad Paisley. Oh. Uh, thankfully. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was Scottish, uh, follow, started by, uh, Scottish and Irish, uh, ranching settlers. And so, uh, I, you know, we grew up, I'm, I'm using air quotes, Christian, you know, sort of non-denominational, like, you're just like, Hey, we're Christian. We believe in Jesus and all that. Right, right, right. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's very common thing, uh, especially down there in the middle of nowhere and, you know, in the country. And, uh, we, uh, my, my dad's boss, uh, and his wife, they were, uh, well, my dad's boss was the head of the ranch. And then like his wife was a teacher at our school. Right. So, I mean, uh, and, and her daughters, my brother and I were very good friends with. So there was one night where we went to go spend the night at their house just to hang out. And the next morning happened to be a Saturday and they're like, okay, well, we're going to go to church. I was like, it's Saturday though. Like that's so strange like that doesn't make any sense like it churches on sundays they're like no like it's 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 saturday you know and of course like i'm like probably you know five or six or seven you know like i don't understand it's like okay this is weird whatever so we go there and it's actually like near my house which was strange and i was like i didn't know there was a church over here and we go in there and i don't remember what the outside looked like but the inside i'm like this is not a church like, this is very different, you know, like all the pews, like were in, you know, aligned in very much such a way. And at the end, there was this altar and there were no seats. There were just like little like felt pads that you had to kneel down on. And it's like, oh, my God, like what is happening? Uh, you, okay, do you want to uh, yep. interject here for a second? Yeah. The seven day 
uh, Adventist church is, uh-huh. is a Protestant offshoot denomination, which distinguished by its observance of Saturday, um, right. the seventh day of the week in Christian and Jewish calendar and the Sabbath, and emphasizes the imminent second coming avid of, of Jesus Christ. So that is who uh, worships on Saturday as opposed to the Sunday. Okay, interesting. All right. So good to know. Yeah, so they're, yeah, so they're very prominent uh, Irish family, and uh, they were the O'Learys, and so, yeah, they must have been uh, Seventh-day Adventists mm-hmm. or, or something of the like. So, uh, yeah, so we so we kneeled down on these little felt uh, uh, benches, and we all put our hands, and, like, everybody was, like, given a Bible, you know, it was like, whoa, like, this is so weird, because, like, my times going to church, it was very, like, uh, free and open, you know, and it was, like, this very restricted thing, and... I've been to, you know, I, I, I had been to churches before where we all had communion, but you know, we, I, you know, we were too young to partake in that sort of thing. They're like, no, you haven't been through, you know, whatever, you know, hoops that you had to jump through in order to, to partake communion. And so when it time, when it came time to communion, it all came around, they're like, no, you have to take it. Like mm-hmm. it's, you have to do it. You know, I was like, this feels strange and like, and naughty. Like I thought it was all wine too. And I'm like, oh my God, it was just grape juice, but, uh, or whatever the equivalent was. And, um, and uh, so we took it and it just felt very strange. Like, I don't really remember the sermon. I remember there was a guy speaking in Latin, you know, I was like, okay, I don't, this is even more strange. And um, yeah, it was just one of those things where it totally threw me off guard in like just how different it was from just being Christian or whatever that meant. And, sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. And that's the tricky part about, yeah. uh, that's the tricky part about Christianity. It's really hard to, to pin down mm-hmm. um, because of, of all, you know, the, I think Christianity is when it kind of like, you know, I guess, and Judaism kind of has that too, where it's like, you can have a traditional um, like understanding of Judaism without necessarily the extreme belief. Yeah. And I think that that's the equivalent of kind of like non-dominational Christians where they go, you know, I believe in, in Jesus. Uh-huh. So therefore I'm a Christian because I do believe in his resurrection. Now, as far as, as how specific we get into the, the doctrines of how to properly believe, yeah. you know, that kind of goes up in the air. And again, I think it again, alludes back to Paul of being like just that belief alone kind of quote unquote makes you a Christian. However, each different branch of Christian has their own kind of moral standing of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. And when they kind of counterbalance or move, like right now, you know, I think the in the Christian community, the, the angelical branch is is being scrutinized because of their backing of, you know, of Trump and, and, and of, oh, of yeah. what, you know, kind of what it means. And other denominations are like, that's not morally what, what Jesus had meant. And, and so th- I think that there's constant conflict and struggle between them as to exactly what is the, the, the proper way of, of following. And I think to me, this is anecdotal, but I think it, my theory is because of the fact that Jesus had, had died for our sins and, and, and believing in that is, is, is kind of like, is what's going to lead to our salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's really vague on, you know, on, on like, do you follow his teachings? Like, because if we're acknowledging that original sin has existed and, and Christians believe that you're born into the world sinful, um, just due to that original sin. And because you're born into the world with, uh, with having sin, you know, it's accepting Jesus that, that cleanses you from that sin, like as what the baptism is for. Right. And if that's the only, you know, if, if, so far to start, if you think that that's the only, you know, the only, I guess, uh, thing that you need, yeah. then I can understand where it gets muddy from how to, to kind of live the life that you want to live. If you, if you're accepting that only needing to believe in that resurrection is, is what, what is needed to, to ascend into heaven. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, and, you know, we can sort of save part of this conversation for the follow up episode that we're planning on doing uh, with the series, you know, but it's it's one of those things where it's it's it almost seems like a loophole, you know, like, no, 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 look, you can do what you want. I mean, don't do all these other, you know, basic sins, but, you know, you just have to accept Jesus into your heart, you know, believe that he was crucified and resurrected and be baptized and then you're good. Right, and, I, and what really fascinates, I think the most, the, the thing that I would probably say fascinates me the most about Christianity is this concept of the transition of how God has chosen. You know, the Old Testament, God is, is he's jealous and he's angry and he's vengeful. And he, and you yeah. know, he, he gets, he, he has a lot of people murder in his name. He is murdered in his name. Um, and you know, it's just, there is, there's a lot of death and murder and it's just a very vengeful God. And then when you move into Jesus, you know, it is almost the polar opposite. It's like God had decided to switch tactics a little bit and, and come from a more soft and, and, and understanding way. And so I, I just think that it's, you know, first of all, you have like, you know, Noah and the flood where, where God literally floods the world because of how rapid that the human sin has grown. And then, yes, of course, you know, the rainbow symbolism not doing that again. However, you can almost make the argument that sin had continued to wrap it. And if he promised to not flood the world again, then maybe he just decided to switch, switch up, um, you know, the way that he, he, he decides changes tactics. Changes tactics. So for yeah. me, you know, and, and this is really interesting, too, because when I try to talk to my friends that are religious that may know scripture, they find it weird that that I that I question like God's character or that I, I view God as. As like, I want to know, you know, if we're all motivated by actions, you know, because in most Christianity, it's, it's, he's divine and that is it. That's all you need. Yeah. You know, don't question God's word because he divine and, and God is all knowing. And, you know, I don't doubt that. However, like the human side of me just sees like very, very humanistic patterns that God takes. And, and I'm curious, you know, how old is God? You know, is he, is he battling with other gods? You know what I mean? Like I said, in the, in the new yeah. Testament, you know, there are other gods that are mentioned and he says, don't believe these gods. I'm your true God. And like you said, true God can imply they're false or to comply that there are other gods and, and you know, in the ethos and that he is, you know, just the creator of earth and our universe. Yeah. You know, cause it, cause again, like I, when I found out in mythology, they, they, not only did they mention heaven and hell, but you know, Anaxus Mundus, which is Latin. Yeah. See, yeah. I learned. I see. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it really talks about the realms as well and, and tr- navigating the realms. And, and so it's just, I just would, I'm just fascinated to maybe like, maybe look into to me in my own time. Why, you know, why, why is it depicted that, that God s- changed tactics so drastically sure. and brought in, you know, brought in his yeah, quote unquote son to die for a sense. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So uh, in the time that we have left, I, I know you still wanted to talk about uh, holidays and, yeah. and those rituals. And then uh, I think maybe we'll finish up. I want to talk about uh, the, the issue of translations uh, sure. when it comes to that. So, yeah. yeah. So why don't you, yeah. So um, the, the only real thing that, you know, I, again, exa- I don't want to talk about each specific holiday. I just want to note that the, the interesting thing about the, about Christian holidays is, is, is a majority of them have been adapted and, and taken from pagan rituals. Yeah. And, and what fascinates me, the reason why I want to bring up holidays is because as, as we've learned with Islam and, and Judaism, that holidays are, are very specific towards, you know, the, um, the the 
how do okay how do i phrase this the holidays of judaism and islam are very specific towards the scripture and the important meanings within the the scriptures and the doctrines right yeah and however you have christian holidays like christmas which is about santa claus you know what i mean you have easter about the easter bunny yeah. but somehow it's linked and then you have christmas representing jesus's birth even though he wasn't born on the december 25th yeah, he was and born then, in like march right and then you have like <laughs> easter which is you know again like we talked about earlier passover and his resurrection but there's also these pagan like weird you know easter bunny and 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 christian and and and, and um and santa claus and then the, how that links back in and yeah. it's just a, a very weird hodgepodge i think is what christian well, holidays yeah, are and i think i mean compared largely, to the other two yeah and i think largely it's because like the way that the the christianity and the catholic church were spreading throughout europe mm-hmm. especially was that uh look we're sort of conquering you and here's the best way that we can sort of integrate your holidays. Like you can still have your holidays. You can still have your rituals, but Jesus is like the central figure of that belief. And so I think that was a way to sort of recon- reconcile that, you know, so like with, uh, with, uh, Christmas, for example. So it's actually forbidden to go out and chop down a tree to bring it into your house. Yeah. And in, in, with Christmas. However, there's like this loophole. It's like, no, no, no. Like there's, you need to bring in a Yuletide tree mm-hmm. uh, in order to be able to celebrate and decorate. And it's still, you're still not able to bring it into your house. You know, it was supposed to be this thing that was kept outside. That was this very, it was like this Germanic holiday that they had, uh, but that was sort of integrated. And it's like, and now we bring the trees into the house. And like, it's this, again, this whole ritual. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, I think it's, um, too, I, I believe it's in that same episode that I mentioned earlier of Sam Harris's podcast about the, the, the biblical scholar from UC Chapel Hill, where he, he talks about like, you know, cultural appropriation is huge uh, for the spread of, of Christianity, yeah. where they have they have, you know, adapted and modified certain things to either match what's culturally going on and it, it makes it more you know acceptable. And they are one of the. You know, maybe that's where all these denominations are kind of branching off from. But but Christianity seems to be the most molded. Like some scholars are, you know, some arguments for the 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 why there's 2.5 billion people that practice it. Not only for all the denominations, but because they do culturally molds, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. around what's kind of growing, what's learning, and how you know we're kind of expanding as 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 we move closer to the future and more technology and our lives are getting easier to live and all these things are going you know, Christianity is molding into modern times, which some religions are, are, are not known to, 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 to do. Partake yeah, in that. yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, it, uh, and, uh, you know, just another, uh, example here. So with, with Christmas and Santa Claus, so like Santa Claus is this mixture between this Catholic saint, St. Nicholas, mm-hmm. who would go around and helping, uh, the poor basically yes. and, and poor children who was condemned by the church you know, during his life, you know, and then it was only after his death that he gained sainthood. And it's also mixed with this Germanic pagan, like, uh, demon named Krampus mm-hmm. who'd go around punishing children, you know, and like giving them coal and putting them in bed ba- and putting children in bags and beating them and taking them off to hell and shit like that and into the woods. And like, <laughs> so it was like this strange combination. You right. Know, now you get Santa Claus. And for me, you know, I, I started writing, uh, uh, an idea for a book. This is back when, Again, I guess not to not to try to talk negatively here, but I, I was dating a girl who whose father was a preacher, and she she wanted to write uh, romance novels, uh-huh. and he just oh yeah, you've told me about despised this, yeah. her for that, and she felt so wrong for wanting to do that, and and again, I I don't mean to keep virtue signaling here, but I was not raised with the religion, so to me on the surface, I just thought. 
that just seemed really messed up to me that he's basically just making his daughter feel terrible yeah. for, you know, for having the passion to be a, parano a paranormal romance writer. I'm like, what's the problem with that? Like, you know, that's what she wants to do. So I just thought I, I, I was inspired to, to want to study the Bible to understand how like words on a page can go to what I'm seeing mm -hmm. right now. And, and in the opening forward, I make a comparison. Uh, and I think that, that, that uh, Santa and Christmas you know, I view, and we're going to talk about, we'll expand on this in our religious episode, but I view kind of these as, as kind of like moral stories and, and fables, sure. not yeah. necessarily, you know, actual real belief, but I, I view them as, as warning stories and, and look just like how, you know, look, look at, I compare Christianity almost to, to Christmas in this sense. We lie to our children. We tell them that Santa Claus is going to come and bring them, bring them presents only if they do what? If they behave, yeah. Santa Claus is always watching, just yeah. like God. He knows when you're naughty and nice, just like God. And if you're naughty, you get a lump of coal. And if you're if you're nice, you get presents. Yeah. Very reflectant to if you if you live a good life, you go to heaven, and if you don't live a bad life, you go to hell. Yeah. And and then we tell kids that if they if they do good, then they're going to get Christmas presents. And then when they wake up Christmas morning, they open those gifts, and you know, and motivates them. And at some point in our lives, we find out that Santa Claus isn't real. Mm -hmm. Now, does that destroy us? No, we continue to tell that same lie to our children. And why do we continue to do this after you know, you know year or generation of generation of generation? And it's because not only is it is it is it a fun time to celebrate family, and it's community because you yeah. celebrate family brings family together. Secondly, it it teaches children to be nice. Like yeah. it's a way to convince them to to continue to be good throughout the year in order for Santa Claus to give them presents. And then I convert that to, I think that Christianity in general, or mainly a lot of religions, is the same way. Yeah. They are stories that yeah. you tell children to get them to learn a sense of moral code. And then when they find out these stories aren't real, I don't think it's going to explode their lives or change anything different. It's just more of like, and then we pass that, that tradition on. Yeah. Um, That's uh, the comparison uh, I make. Yeah, I want to expand on that. You know, so like I'm in this, uh, I believe I mentioned it uh, maybe a few episodes ago, I'm in this course on the philosophy of religion. And one of the things that we talked about, that we talked about, I actually, I was talking about this yesterday in class, uh, is, uh, is the function of belief. And, you know, again, one, another example that came out of the uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek is that, you know, Christmas comes around and we, again, we lie to our kids, you know, about Santa Claus. And, and why do we lie to them? Well, we don't want to disappoint them, right? right. That there's no Santa Claus and everything like that. But what's interesting is that, you know, in reality, the kids probably know that there's no Santa Claus. And, and, but why don't they tell their parents? Because they didn't want to disappoint their parents that they don't believe, you know? And well, so it's interesting. I would, things. I would, I mean, it depends on what age I think it's probably cause well, I think... it's just, it's just like this mode to, to, to in, in to think about belief and, and why oh, we I do see. that, you know? And it, because like, again, it has that function to bring us all together. It has community. There's, there's tremendous meaning in it. And again, well, like you said, we'll explore this more in our, in yeah. our afterward. But uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where belief has this real tangible effect, especially in Christianity and, and these uh, holidays. Um, and it, it also bleeds, you know, and, and it's just like kind of like the nature of human beings. Cause it bleeds, yeah. you know, out to other stuff. Like, you know, I believe for a long time that if you ate and got in the, and if you ate and didn't wait 30 minutes to get into the pool, you're going to cramp. You know, it turns out that that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, Oh, it's just an old wives tale. Yeah. So it's know? just like, you know, things. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's, and again, this is something else that fascinates me about Christianity and, or I guess any religion at this point is that, um, how, 
as we see with the Constitution, right? Look at what's going on in American politics. Look what's yeah. going on with, with what is it? It's a constant battle of what the hell do these words mean? Mm-hmm. Because they were written 400 years ago and we, don't, we can't really talk to the people that wrote them. So, like, what, what are we going to do? And then, like, you know, and so we, we have to battle of interpretations. And right now you have, you know, you have Republicans and Democrats who essentially interpret the same doctrine differently. And so I think for me, what, what worries me about religion is that the longer we go, the further away we are, and how can you interpret these these things that were that didn't account for the future? Yeah, you know, like you know, and that's one of the critiques of the Constitution. You, we didn't know what we were going to accomplish, whether technology wise, scientific wise, and as our culture begins to grow and expand, where is religion's place in that? And and again, that's how <clears throat> powerful belief is. However, you know, you believe these base structures, but like, as we're starting to notice certain things are getting lost, certain things are getting misinterpreted. It's a game of telephone. I mean, like, uh, again, I think, uh, and maybe this might not be true, kind of anecdotal. I just, I've always remembered like the Bible was, was orally, uh, passed down for, yeah. for, for hundreds of years before it was actually written. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, again, like what I was talking about earlier with uh, Constantine and sort of ordering the compilation of the of the Gospels, you know, is that like those uh, those traditions for a long time were just passed down orally. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, early again, I'm not sure when uh, Constantine was was around, uh, but in that century, it wasn't until then to like, okay, well, we should finally write these down and compile them. And then they sort of get, you know presented in more of a in a more of a a standard text that can be you know uh, perpetuated into the future yeah because i you know i read this uh and again this is i'm just going to say this i read this interesting thing now there was no sources to this so i cannot confirm or deny if this is actually real but Mm -hmm. he talked about how the 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 plagues that 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 um hit egypt when moses was around actually um is scientifically proven because there is a the big volcano that had erupted right i've heard very similar have you heard that where it's yeah. like the sulfur uh, turned the water red of uh, the, the river nile and that's where the it ran blood and apparently the there was toxins that were released and so all the wildlife the frogs were, were coming because of the to- they were trying to break free of that same with the locusts and the bugs and yeah and animals were dying from <laughs> drinking the toxins in the water and then more lava was being produced from the animals that were dying you know, and then apparently it turns out that the whole killing of the firstborns, um, I guess it has something to do with children at the time where they were more susceptible uh, to the toxins and so that they were dying at a much rapid rate than adults were. So like uh-huh. there's this kind of interesting, you know, most so, people didn't have that many kids. So often it was right. like the first. Exactly. Kid, that's all they had. That's, that's all they had. Yeah. And so there is. And so and then, then there's a there's a biblical scholar that I've looked up that she's been on the daily show. And uh, I don't have her name on me now, but I'll try to find it for the show notes. Sure. But yeah. the point that is relevant is she is a, is one of the one like that guy from East Chapel. She is also one of the only three biblical scholars that is non-religious. Uh-huh. And she was saying that she thinks that at the time that the, the books were put together, that the garden of Eden actually represents like a, like a palace or a temple at the time. And, and, and she thinks that a lot of this, the biblical stories, the, the, the mysticism that's going on is actually just kind of like a, 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 you know, they're metaphors for, to be interpreted. And, and that's also, you know, the, the main difference between Orthodox and non-Orthodox, non-Orthodox denominations is Orthodox takes it as straight 
verbatim what it says is how it goes. Right. And then you get muddy with different interpretations of, no, this yeah. is what it, the metaphor means, this, 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 and yeah, this. Yeah, um, there's a couple of things I want to add in there. So one with the, the volcano account uh, in the, uh, the, with the plagues of Egypt, you know, so another thing too was like, because of the, uh, you know, clouds of smoke and ash that was pumped into the air, you know, there's that. Uh, oh, the darkening yeah, of the yeah, sky. There, yeah, there's like one day where like God stretched his hand out and it was completely dark. Well, a lot of people think it's because like of the clouds over the sky, you know, it was blocking out the sun. Um, the other thing too about the Garden of Eden is like I think if I remember correctly, Eden literally translates into garden, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, it also uh, means just the area in between the Tigris and the Euphrates, like uh, like a direct literal translation is like no, that's just where it is, right? You know, and it's just this it's pro and because I mean if you look in that area like when especially in, uh, long much longer ago when the uh it was a much more uh fertile area like those two rivers brought a lot of life into that area you know so like you could say it's garden-esque or paradise like yeah and you know it's and even going further fascinating and you know mythology here is like if if you want even in modern day context if you want to become a saint you have to document and perform i think it's three miracles we have to document three miracles you don't you, you wait, do you perform? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah you I have to perform three yeah. miracles that are, that are documented <clears throat> as miracles and that, you know, I haven't seen any evidence of that. You know, I think too, it's, 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 you know, for, for just funny sake, cause it's not realistic, but that whole storm area 51 thing and how like <laughs> that was, yeah. there is a new movement trying to say storm the Vatican because it's like, you know, they, people are curious about the historical records that nobody's allowed to see, but those in the church and what, what, what knowledge, you know, our insight is held into these religions with, with the amount yeah. of historical, you know, there's that uh, show on HBO called the, the new Pope or the young Pope that I've been wanting to watch because it seems like one of those things where it's like this, it's basically like a political drama, like within the Vatican. And I would, it just seems fascinating to me. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no, that's anyway, um, no, I think that that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, I think that we covered a lot of information. Well, I think... quickly in the, in the last 10 minutes oh, sure, or so sure, here, yeah, I yeah. wanted to talk about translations just because oh, that's I, right. I, that's I, right. I think that's, that's right. a really important factor uh, into why there are, there is these problems with interpretation. So, you, you know, you mentioned the U S constitution. Yeah. That thing's written in English. Yes. You know, you know, and we the, still the have 1700s trouble. And we're, and we're yeah. having trouble interpreting what exactly they mean, you know, for the time today, you know. And I think the biggest thing that we run into with uh, with the Bible uh, specifically and like the Old Testament and coming through is that, you know, like these things were written in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they're translated into either Aramaic or at the time uh, when Judaism was spreading into um, uh, into Attica, basically ancient Greece and, and Athens and all that sort of. Uh, era is just like okay well now this needs to be translated into greek and then later on into into latin and then it goes through the germanic and romantic languages and, and has to be translated into french and english and at the time those languages were just developing mm-hmm. so like old english is not the same as as modern english it's like way different like yeah they had and, sp- and not only that though yeah. but they had way more syllables and and way more words too yeah. it's just like i guess yeah. uh, i've read somewhere like even in shakespeare's time that the the English vocabulary has shrunk quite a, quite a bit yeah. since that time. that was in time. Middle English yes. during his time, you know. Yeah, 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 which is, yeah. So that was like, you know, so even then, yeah, language is still yeah. developing. And, and, you know, like with with English, for example, I mean, words just mean different things, you know, for like, uh, for a long time, the word meat just meant food that you would eat. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't mean actual, the muscle, you know, in, in, in particular animals. And so one of the things that I've learned uh, doing philosophy and what I was 
talking about earlier is that, you know, in, in reading the ancient Greeks, we spend a lot of time focusing on translation, you know, yeah. because when you're reading one something, second, I got one thing to interject because sure. yeah. I think it's cool. And yeah. Shakespeare has the same similar stuff because yeah. back then he used so a lot of people get laugh because he says there's a line in one of his plays where he, he says um, like he doesn't get his desserts and people are like, that's funny. Like, gotta take his desserts away, and they're like, "No, no, Doesn't no!" Mean, Back then, desserts means like means like his pro, his the good what things. You deserve what, what you, you deserve. deserve. Yeah, yeah, you, like, yeah. You want to get your just desserts. exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just desserts, yeah. as in what you what you yeah. deserve or what you need to be given. Yeah, That's exactly. not, not what we think of today as like your dessert. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I yeah. Trust me. I I, I I'm I, sure. I see people get hung up on stuff like that all the time, but. Um, but yeah, you know, so like when we're reading, you know, Aristotle, mm-hmm. uh, for example, I'm in an Aristotle author's course and almost every, you know, so we sit down and we read through paragraph by paragraph and, and line by line, every once in a while, my, my professor would be like, see, like, I don't know why he's picking this translation over the other. And like, we get hung up on what certain words mean, you know? So like in, in Greek, you have the word logos, right? Which is where we get ology in, in, uh, you know. Uh, in uh, epistemology or biology and logos, it it can mean different things within different contexts, you know, like, so like the line of words that it's brought in there can mean, it might mean something different, you know? So like logos most directly translates to speech or, or, or to speak or the spoken word. And uh, it's one of those things where it's, you were literally talking about how, you know, like biology example is like, how do we speak about life? Right. You know, or how do we understand life? You know, but it, it can also be translated into reason or rationality. And another thing uh, that we get the word irrational from is like the, 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 uh, you know, if you look at a right triangle, you know, you have the one side and the other side, and then you have the hypotenuse. Uh, and that length of that side is irrational because there's no way to like, it doesn't have a, uh, a rational square, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have a square root. Well, it is a square root. It doesn't have an actual whole number uh, to it. And we think of it as irrational because like it is with outside of reason. We can't reason it to have like a whole number. Like it's something that we have to do some other mathematical magic basically to get to that. But then you take that into context later on and we look at reason and the sort of faculty that that means to have to us and whether or not it means to be unreasonable. And so when we're talking about speech, for example, in, in ancient Greek, like we, we have a hard time in pinning down. It's like, well, do they mean something that's being reasonable or something that we need what the power of speech is, you know, uh, uh, with the Christianity, for example, you know, a lot of the times this, the start of biblical creation in both the old Testament and in just the Bible in general is that, you know, God starts off by saying, let there be light. Yeah. And it really has to do with the power of his voice, you know, and the power of the, of the word, you know, and, and of the written word and, and how creative, uh, the, uh, speech is and, and the implications that that has. Yeah. Especially and, to change yeah. the one word. I, and I think too, I, I just kind of, you know, maybe it's because of the 300 milligrams of caffeine I had before we started. <laughs> I have like this grandiose idea right now that just popped into my head. So I want to share it with you. Yes, please. Um, I, the one thing I just thought about is like, I think of modern day speech, right? And uh-huh. I think of words like sick. Yeah. Like, and how culturally 
Yeah. We have changed the meaning of words in a slang context to mm-hmm. mean a variety of different things where sick means like awesome or cool. Yeah. And like even awesome. <laughs> we grew up in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But like sick or, you know, like or even now, you know, you have like, you know, there's certain phrases that I've now heard where it's like, you know, for example, I heard a term that I thought was hilarious to me because um, one of my, you know, young one of my younger, I think she's 18, uh, one of my, co- uh, my employees, <laughs> she like took a bite of something. She's like, mm, this slaps. <laughs> and I'm like, Ex- excuse me? Excuse me? <laughs> I was like, all right, it'd be slapping. And she's like, no, it slaps. It means that it's great. It's it's good. It's awesome. And I'm like, where does that, so like, strange. it's so good. It just slaps you in the face. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even understand that. So now I'm learning new slang <laughs> yeah. of, of, of now kids that are coming up for it. So I can only imagine that if you go back into time, culture was still prevalent and people were probably using words that they knew and, and giving them different meanings and different interpretations. Yeah, and, and the way we're looking at it now doesn't mean exa- exactly. Exactly. You even that. look, you yeah. even look at like how, how language is culturally motivated is like the prime example of that is when Oxford dictionary said that they put bootylicious <laughs> into the Oxford dictionary. And that made me so, that was so funny to me that a term like bootylicious can be so culturally appropriate that, that they, in, in turns becomes a word in our language now, Yeah, yeah you know, sure. and, and not only that though, but you have, you know, now we have different definitions as you go on Webster and then those definitions probably derived, uh, you know, from other definitions and, and slang words, uh, negative words towards other people have been yeah. rechanged. And yeah. so you can see the shit show that is language, even in a modern context of, of what, and then you have a lot of like, like um, uh, foreign language learners. Oh, sure. They go, uh, yeah, I, like my, uh, you know, one of my friends, like, oh, I, I speak traditional J- Japanese. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, well, I don't know the slang. You know, I don't, and you know, so oh, like, sure. yeah. so now I hear people when they learn other languages, they, they even have to let them know that I know the, the formal language. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean by formal? Oh, They're yeah. like, well, you know, most people, you know, that language now is so different because I don't know the slang and the cultural developments that happened over there. Yeah. Like when I took a, you know, a few terms of German, you know, it's one of those things is like, no, 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 we're not really learning German. We're learning high German, which is like the most formal you can be. Like if you go to the South and like Bavaria, you're not going to understand them. It's like, well, great. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, in a story, the, the, another funny anecdotal story, and I think I might've told this one before, but whoever, well, fuck we're going to fuck it. Fuck it. <laughs> um, I went to college with a man named Kolyo Kalev and he's Bova- he's Bavarian. No, yeah, he's, Bavarian. No, he's or Bur- or Bulgarian. No, no, he's Romanian. Sorry. Okay, Romanian. And he his family's part of the circus. He's part of the Romanian circus. Oh my God. <laughs> and dude, he did a lot of cool party tricks. Like I, that yeah. man was a legend. Like we we'd see him. He would just do a one. He would go. He would take a chair and he would go to the very top of the chair and do a a, a handstand one handed. Wow. Like with balancing, like he yeah. was pretty legit. Yeah. However, he was telling me a story that English is a second language. And then when he was learning English, that one of his buddies to mess with them told him that a, a proper greeting in America is fuck off. So he was like, he said he was only like 13 at the time. Oh my God. And he was convinced that like, so he, he said that he would go around and just start telling people to fuck off. <laughs> And he came back and he was confused because he said a lot of people are not. And he said he learned very quickly that that is not a phrase that yeah. is used um, as a greeting. And so and, and, and I think that what it made me think of is like, holy crap, like people were taking advantage of his misunderstanding of slang. Yeah. And now he was like, he didn't. So for him, like these certain concepts or words where he's like. You know, he says he struggles with with sometimes finding the literal meaning. And when people say stuff 
Like, he's like, I'm not sure what you just meant by that. You know what I mean? And like, like, no, I was just speaking. Like, yeah. And he's yeah. just like, what, what are you trying to say? He's like, that's, he's like a sick man. Let's shred it. And he's like, I don't know what you just said. Yeah. He's like, you're not feeling well. And you want to, you want to rip it to pieces. You know what I mean? Cause he's taking yeah. these words for their literal meanings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, it's definitely, uh, you know, a hard thing. So I think the last thing I'll say to, uh, again, just to harp on the translation thing. So we were talking about the the Trinity earlier, the Holy yeah. Trinity. And, the, and it got me thinking about the, the Holy spirit. And a lot of, when I was growing up, I also heard it called as the Holy ghost. I don't know if you've heard that as well. I have. And, uh, it was one of those things that got me thinking. So in, uh, in German, we, the word for spirit is Geist, you know, we think, but it also means, pol- it also means, uh, ghost. So when you think of the classic horror film, Poltergeist, you know, it literally is translated into, you know, to the ghost, but more specifically it talks about spirit and you know so we think of what the word zeitgeist means which is basically like sort of the cultural spirit or or cultural uh consciousness of you know of the era what's going on and i think what's interesting when we look back at the at the uh the holy trinity here and what spirit means you know you can almost think of it as uh not it's not like some like physical essence or soul you know because in, in ancient greek the word for soul is suke which is where uh, uh, psychology gets uh, that name from with suke and psychology is literally the 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 study or the way to speak about the soul hmm. and it's only until uh much much later hundreds of years later and when we think of it as the mind or or the brain or anything like that um and uh so it's one of those things that makes me think like I wonder at the time, you know, of like, uh, for example, you know, in the, uh, Jesus's, uh, baptism, you know, when they're talking about the Holy spirit descending out of him or something like that, like in that context, what were they talking about? Like, what did they witness? You know, what, uh, what did everybody else think about the, what spirit meant at the time sure. you know, in Judea or something like that, or in Galilee. And so I think, yeah, that, that's one of the issues that we have. Again, just to harp on that is the problem of, of translation and, and context. And yeah, you're not right. You're not yeah. wrong. And I think, you know, we're, we're in the modern day of, of efficiency and, and instant gratification. And, and, and I think that if you're not a scholar who you have to take the time to look into ancient translations and to try to like figure out what was going on back then and figure yeah. out what the word is, you're just going to read that and interpret it to how you modernly know what that word yeah. means. That's what I think too, you know, like if we look at modern day Christianity and the adherents that are maybe non-denominational that take things like very literally, you know, fundamentalist Christians, whatever that means, you know, they're like, no, the it's the literal word of God. It's like, in a way they are actually the least fundamental. You know, because like they're taking things purely literally without any cultural context at all. And not only so it's that, really the biblical scholars that are going like, no, what is this? Yeah, really you're mean? Not, and then also too, you really think of the literal word of God. It's actually you know how many times it's been translated, mm-hmm. you know, in how many different languages until it gets to you. And I think you know with each translation to each different language, you're going. It's just it's just natural that you're going to lose some sense of meaning. Yeah, exactly. It's just. And again, because you can understand that in a non-biblical sense, like you can see that happen, like the game of telephone tells you that, or like even, you know, certain, like you said, you know, it blew my mind when I told Ian, um, I had a biography of Nietzsche book that I was going to read and he was like, whoa, who translated it? What's it into? Like, da, da. And I was like, whoa, 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 just chill. He's like, no, you don't understand. Like, like the type of translation, like especially when you're when you're dealing with philosophers that didn't originate, you know, not Western philosophers, not philosophers from here that, that spoke English. Yeah. It is very, very important that you know who translated it. Oh, yeah. Like I have two different copies of Beyond Good and Evil that are both different. They don't say the same things, you know, written by the same person. 
Uh, well, sorry, the the translations are by two different people, but they're both written by Nietzsche, you know, and so and it's the same book, and so they're they're literally translated differently because we think of the meanings as as different. I was just reading this interview actually with the latest uh, translator of Will to Power, R. Kevin Hill, and how he viewed the translation differently, and how the early translators of the Will to Power uh, were Walter Kaufman and R.J. Hollingdale, and they the way they looked at it was very much to translate things in a, in a much more readable way. And uh, they took the notes of Nietzsche and tried to change them in such a way that was, it was just different. Whereas like the original editors of Nietzsche work, uh, uh, Peter Gass, which is a friend of Nietzsche, like he tried to take all of his uh, Nietzsche's notes and put them in a very like exactly way that Nietzsche wanted them. And then later on in like the 60s when it was translated into English from German, they're like, no, we have this other different interpretations on it, this different way to look at his notes. And then there was this other group of people. They're like, no, no, we're going to like exclude a bunch of stuff from these notes because he already said this in all these other works. And then our Kevin Hill comes along. It's like, well, we can't discount all this other stuff because he still intended it to be in this book. And it was like, it just gets bogged down. So, so you know? I guess the point <laughs> is, is that the reason we tell the story, because if we can see that to be true, with Nietzsche yeah. and it's not controversial because yeah. Nietzsche's not writing biblical scripture. It, <laughs> it is arguable. Like I would make the argument that that could also be the case when you translate the Bible, yeah. but nobody really, yeah. I've never heard of anybody really like, you know, I'm not sure exactly who's translating these in different languages and like, are there different interpretations? Like, you know, you have the King James version and now the, the new, the modern version, but are there different versions of the modern version? And it's like, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just really, yeah. it's fascinating. And I think in, for now, we're about at, you know, yeah, a little over yeah. two hours now. Yeah, so, so uh, let's wrap this up. And uh, again, thanks for riding with us this whole week. <laughs> yeah. Really, I know this yeah. month has been just a dump of yeah. of, of all sorts of knowledge on, on these different religions. Yeah, the few and, listeners who are sticking with this series, yep. thank you. <laughs> and even so, like, this is, we only scratched the damn surface. Like, yeah. we could probably, yeah. you know, you could, you could have an entire podcast based on each one of these religions individually. Right. So we had a good time exploring that we're going to have a more you know broad discussion of religion as we've already started to kind of do yeah the last thing uh we'll say here is that like this episode particularly episode 33 on christianity uh this is going to be out the week uh of thanksgiving here in the u.s so a little bit before not the actual day of thanksgiving or anything like that and then as josh was about to say we're going to have a sort of comprehensive afterward episode about religions in general how we feel about them in a much more in-depth uh, conversation. Yep. And then after that, we are coming up on the year anniversary of the podcast, and we are super excited about that. And we are going to retouch uh, our very first episode, Flaws in American Democracy. Yeah. And we think that, you know, with the impeachment inquiry and everything going on, it's very prevalent yeah. to get back into that into that topic. In that political realm, for sure. Yes, exactly. Because yeah. so, that's another thing that we do around Absolutely. Here, so. so it's all about self-education, because uh, that's how that works. So, all right, guys, we're getting out of here. Thanks for listening, and Uh, everything that guy just says bullshit. Thank you.